Tales from the Soundstand, episode 77, Two Little Crutches. A uh, Happy New Year to all our wonderful listeners. It's our first broadcast of 2019. I am Garth Parsons and the Professor Carl Riley here as always. And it's a brand new year. We've decided to take the show in a whole new direction. So um, we understand that everybody will not be happy with this new direction. But give it a chance and it'll be lots of fun. So Carl, tell us what you're doing there. Well, I'm just going to get some olive oil into the pan here first of all. Uh, now, I'll cut the garlic, and if you use a razor, you can slice it so thin, it'll liquefy in the pan with just a little oil. Mmm, gorgeous. Okay, listen, I'm just prepping the steaks. Oregano, rock salt, some some red wine, a robust Merlot. I know you like your steaks. Medium rare, Gary. Oh, it's, Garth. oh it's delish. Oh, how about this Merlot, Professor? Well, I, oh, I've it's never... gorgeous. Oh, thanks. All right. So listen, we're going to pop those steaks into the pan. Uh, some butter. Tomato sauce. Uh, more of this delish Merlot. Lads, are we going to talk about the football or what? Now remember, Garth, don't put too many onions in the sauce. Now listen, listen, Professor. I, I never put too much onions in the sauce. All right. That's not what Fintan said. You get Fintan fuck off. Uh, so the last few ingredients. Uh, you want to splash the Pinot Grigio all over the steaks. Just a little pinch of salt. Uh, just a little pinch. Just just a pinch, a smidgen, and a tad more Merlot, and ta-da! So here's one we prepared earlier. Our, our tasters are ready. We have Michael Kearns, a supporter of Dublin-based soccer team Shamrock Rovers. What do you think about that one, the whack? Lads, I'm going to be honest. That is awful. Not changing our name or sticking to our guns, Tales from the East End remains. And it's Monthly Madness this month, and of course we are still sponsored by the fantastic Penny Hill, who have provided us with some gorgeous beers. I'm on the Brahma, the Prof was on the Russians with um, the Baltica, what do you think of it? I quite enjoy that. I think I've opened up your eyes, haven't I? It's a nice, delish beer, nice isn't beer. it? Nice Baltica beer. Gold Lager, it's a 5.3, it's delish, you have a couple more in there, so definitely head down to the Penny Hill. Don, a bit of a Guinness man lately, ever since... A certain night in the pines at the end of last year. There was plenty down, wasn't yeah. there? 
But uh, yeah, check them out. They do fantastic craft and international beers. And uh, yeah, the Baltica is the one. The beer of the month at the moment. So go down and ask for Louise and tell them the podcast boy has sent you. So we're doing something a bit different for our fourth show of the year. It's an entirely off the field special. It'll be two parts. And this is part one. It's about the 400 Club club and the long road to Tallis Stadium. And uh, of course we're going to have Mick Cairns and Robert Goggins. So we look forward to them in a bit. And we're going to get through some club news first. We had our December show. It was Ken O'Man and Dean Kelly and was well received. Alan Herbert tweeted us and he said, Fantastic, listen. Ken came across really well and great questions from the lads. We were even endorsed by Reuser, who said some great memories coming back from listening to Dino and Ken on Tales from the East End. Had myself laughing in the car all day. Great to hear Big Ken's infectious laugh again. I love his laugh. It was a bellow, wasn't it? Brilliant. It was more of a bellow than anything. He was so impressed by Johnny Blues. Like, loads of times he'd just suddenly look around and say, some setup, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, he was yeah. gas, man, wasn't he? He's a good lad. Rob Lavelle asked me, uh, was that me playing Ken O'Man as Lord on the piano at the end of the show? <laughs> no, it wasn't, Rob. Although Prophet's a deft hand at the keyboard. Yeah, it wasn't him this time. Don't go into that. Dean Kelly, the spitting image of Messi. Stupid fucking image. How, how, ah, oh, crazy. Scary. Crazy. It was the Weeds who pointed that out, actually. <laughs> Um, so we have Rovers have started a new series on social media called Teammates where the Rovers players are asked to pick the best dancer and the biggest moaner and things of that nature yeah Cabo is picked as best trainer by everybody so every, far every single person he looks like he means business this year oh yes cannot wait to see him moldering and getting started uh, poor, la- poor Kevin Horgan being slaughtered for his, his clothes Every time, yeah. Every, I think he was he was uh, compared to a lumberjack. <laughs> oh, a lot of people worry that Robert Goggins is taking my job. He is. You're gone, probably yeah. sacked. Am I sacked? Yeah, you're gone. The Gog is back. News to me. Uh, since our last show, the fixture list was released, and we start away to war for tricky enough away toy, then home to dirty, and away to bows on the following Monday. So thoughts on the schedule overall, Prof? Did you see April? Seven games. Seven games in April. Actually, we'll do a quick call out because I have the calendar on my phone, which is a fantastic addition to your phone. If anybody can uh, hasn't got it yet, download it and it will automatically import all of the fixtures onto your calendar. So it's great. So, so we start on the 5th of April, we have a way to Cork. And then on the 12th, we have home to Waterford. And then on the 19th, we have a way to Derry. And then on the 23rd, we have home to Bowes. And then the 26th, we have a way to Dundalk. And the 29th, we've home to Pats all in the month of April. Now, that is a tough, tough schedule. That's gonna, we're really going to have to be in business there. Tommy Tarmy, who we had on uh, the NSE's special, he wrote an article on extratime.ie at the end of the year about how the FEI needlessly uh, front-loaded the fixtures at the start of last year. Yeah. Like, there was an extra three games... Because it was a 10-team league. But why did they shove so much at the beginning of the calendar? And maybe they've not done it as much now, but seven games in April, it seems like they kind of have again. April is jam-packed. And we've got Bows on the Monday, we've got Harps on the Monday, although that one was moved because of the the Euro under-17s yeah. taking place in Tata. For anyone wondering why it was a bizarre home game against Harps on the Monday. But, yeah, again, it just seems this fixture, this is a bit strange. I'd love to know the process and, and the thought that goes into actually doing it out. You know, I wonder if it's actually 
um, if they sit around and discuss it or is it just a, a quick job you know mm. um, the July League game at home UCD would be moved as it's scheduled for the day after the Europa League first round second leg uh, so that's the schedule and the fixtures out of the way Tony Cousins was announced as a new under 17s coach with big Davy McAllister joining his staff so Davy Mack will be sticking around oh, great to see Davy stay in the club yeah. obviously we're a big fan of his reigning <coughs> Questions from the East End champion. Which will definitely be an interesting angle on the new Quifties in the new season. I think for the 2019 final, he should be like special enforcer. Yeah, special guest referee. Yeah. And um, we have uh, the 17s will begin at home to Limerick on the weekend of March 3rd. So that's when they will uh, kick off their season. Stephen Rice moves up to manage the 19s who will play their first game at home to Cork on the weekend of the 10th of March. So good luck to Rice and all the boys. We've uh, Aidan Price taking over Tortines ahead of the new National League for that age group. So uh, it's it's all go at the moment at the Roadstone project. And we've Thomas Morgan will be in charge of the under-15s, assisted by Desi Baker and Keith Fahey. So an all-star uh, coaching lineup. That's some backroom team, isn't it? Yeah. I'm loving the ex-hoops, like staying with the club. And imagine you're these kids and you're surrounded by these oh, players you watched growing up. Like, yeah. Cool. And we've Damien Duff, friend of the podcast, who has left for a role at Celtic. Is he a friend of the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> On Christmas Day, we had very sad news. The passing of board member Joe Caldwell, who features prominently in our show today. The tributes were flooding in. Everybody remembered him as a true gentleman and a great hoop. Ray Wilson said this. In our most difficult times, his commitment to Rovers was crucial in keeping us going. We wouldn't be where we are today without his efforts. Rovers will forever be in his debt. So, um, our condolences once again to the Caldwell family and um, we also wanted to mention Adam O'Connor centre back for the under 19s his dad sadly passed it away and his mum is an avid listener yes so there's going to be a benefit night and it's going to be Saturday February 9th 2019 and it is at the Bluebell Football Club it's a disco night so there's music music there's raffle there's crack it's tickets at 10 euro at the door doors opens at 8 o'clock you have disco dancing with a DJ, huge raffle, cool spot prizes. You can get the tickets online as well. So you can go to cowboymick.com. So um, please go down and donate uh, to our good hoops family. And uh, our condolences out to the O'Connors. Yeah, so in other news, we had uh, Lukey Bourne went to Shelbourne, who also signed Kill Duff. So they seem to be pushing the boat out, Prof. It's similar to Waterford, isn't it, two years ago, where they just red hot favourites to win the first division yeah, to the point where you'd be shocked if they didn't win yeah they have a very good squad there. they're uh, they're lining up well um, we have Podge Amund who's back in the news who scored the winner for League 2 Newport County who dumped Leicester out of the FAI Cup and remember we did a lengthy interview with Podge last year so go back and check it out it's episode 42 on March 4th so episode 42 if you want to listen to Podge after his heroics against Spurs that time wasn't it yeah and we have Stephen Kenny he picked his first Ireland under-21 squad and Trevor Clark, Aaron Bulger and Brandon Kavanagh were all in and as was controversially Mikey O'Connor our former striker now with Linfield and I have to say out of the squad watch it, looking at the squad that he did pick he did a good job because it's all the hottest prospects mm. so we, you know he knows the least but Carl Curran's brother too the UCD yeah, keeper you know, Connor has gone in there yeah. but uh, the most striking thing about it is the lack of Dundalk players that are in the squad so I wonder, I wonder uh, if there's anything to that at all. That Mikey was switching allegiances to. I know. So what happens now? The North. Does he? Does he? I mean, you can play all you want on the twenty ones. 
Can he though? I thought the new rules now you could be tied forever. Oh, I'm not sure. If you but it's interesting anyway to see if he'll uh, if he'll take up the offer. And our preseason friendlies, we had no exotic holiday abroad this year. Uh, unsurprisingly, I'm glad as well. Oh, no mean, India or Portugal. No, or it wasn't needed at all. So we started with our bid to regain the Molly O'Toole Cup and the annual charity game against Lugan in Selbridge. 5 0 with goals coming from Watts. Two goals there and Green, Kerr, and young Alex Dawn, a full back got one. Yeah, I went out to this one. Uh, good run now. Trevor Clark played the last quarter of the match, so that was his return. Not as cold as last year. I think that was the coldest I've ever been as a human being. Yeah, bitter. And uh, Bertie Ramsey, he's involved with Luke, and he was telling me that their printer broke, so they couldn't print out as many match programs as they want. And then he was in the PA announcing the lineups, and then at half time, that broke. <laughs> so, bad day at the office for Luke and FC. So, in the following week, we had the two friendlies. We, we had the, the English Academy team beat them 6 1. C block got a hat trick. And uh, this, is where, this is where young Sean Boyd was unfortunately injured again. He's crocked, isn't he? He's no luck, this guy. Oh, uh, I mean, you'd have to wonder now. Could that be it? Yeah, because I know. how many times has this kid broken down? And he's wearing a protective boot as well. Apparently, apparently it's a bad one. So um, we hopefully he gets better soon enough. So then later in the day, it was uh, still a Rollstone again. Uh, the Academy game, that was that was kind of a private game wasn't open to the public this one was open to the public but wasn't actually advertised on Twitter or anything so in a way this was another secret we played Bray lost 3-2 three, 3 penalties yeah 3 second half penalties for Bray managed to save one of them and they scored the other two we were winning the half time with goals from uh, Aaron Green and Trevor Clark Clark's goal was, was great yeah, ran down the wing and drilled into the top corner. Green scored a header, Gare. No, he didn't. For the second consecutive game. You hear that, Maloney? We do not need a striker. We're grand. <laughs> I think you start against Ward. Yeah. So that was my first time watching the game under the lights at Rollstone, actually. Oh, lovely. Because that was, that was a four o'clock kickoff, so it was. Sight to behold. It was getting dark at that point. And probably the standout from the game was Alex Dunn at right back. Uh, was the only 16. 16 years of age and he was the one Duff was been, has been championing he was he was bombing up down the right and he was barking orders he looked like if you threw him in to the game against Waterford he'd be grand lovely I like that that's, that's what I like to hear that's what he looks like he looks ready that's that's the word to, yeah. to describe isn't it ready yeah so um, yeah I think he, he stood out for me in the two games same old faces at Celebridge and Rosestone uh, Pat Tuggy without his man- mannequin yeah thankfully Manny was Manny was feeling mm. well left at home well he has told me that he's um, he, he started in a satanic church in City West and he's he's put a curse on balls There's so they, they won't beat us this free season free membership for Roversands yeah and we're going to get to the final of the FBI Cup so if that works listen I'm on board <laughs> uh, Conor Foley there as well which brings us to, Gary, the latest instalment of Connor's Corner. Which is, uh, which is going to be fantastic stuff. It's, it's a favourite segment of mine. And, uh, so you, remember, you may remember this. Um, Connor Foley, young Connor Foley, sends completely ineligible messages in our WhatsApp group 
usually in the early hours of a Sunday morning. And Jason Maloney has become an expert in translating these because... <laughs> Deciphering it. One day, he wrote the following. He said, Reverie Clares in Diane. And then Maloney quoted this in the group and he was like, let me guess, Trevor Clark's in Diva. And we were all blown away by this. It was like, wow, you can crack codes, man. That was amazing. Uh, so there's been a few more, a few more nuggets since then. So Okay, so first installment on Connor's Corner. It's just me saying I'm dandy. Wubbled. No Connor's Corner. Tonight ended up sit a race after Diva, Kippa. The race was made as the Aussie. Nate would say out there Bicky can't even spell Fimi Bim Minden New Year's Vibe Pat that's all you bales egg could and then after the braid defeat wasn't Fus Tekawuk you're talking backwards he wrote this after he got into a bit of a scuffle he said, Duck dive. I vent see out my leg, rut see. He later added, Suitor see the other fries. <laughs> and then, at 4 am on New Year's, he had written, Hello, with, with an apostrophe before the two L's. <laughs> I'll John talk him tune Glen. He once sets to use to axe ye bars of the boys to Sehejeb him his one million and six percent Sekubjes. So that's uh, Carter's, Carter's Corner this week. Um, <coughs> it's, uh, it's it's tough enough <laughs> to decide what, what he actually says, but it gives us a, it gives us a laugh. Uh, so he's been able to decipher this one this season, so we just got it back from, from NASA. <laughs> he says, hello, I'm just talking to Glenn. He wants one of you to ask the board of the hoops to sign him. He's 100% serious. Ah, so there, there you go. That's what he said. Oh, so we move on to our games again. On Saturday, we drew two all with Longford at Roadstone, and we beat Cove three one in Tala. So, Prof, tell us a bit about it. Uh, I only went to the Tala one, um, but the part I got from Longford was that we uh, we squandered a lead. And it was a howler. It was it? a howler by Kevin Horgan, and uh, Joey O'Brien was sent off in uh, in that game. I think a Longford player had stood on uh, Furlong and then Joey went mad and kind of went for yeah. the player's throat and then the two of them got sent off in the in the fight. So uh, as I said, they only went to the Cove game. Uh, we had we had two trialists. One stayed on the bench. I don't think he, he got on. Darren Nugent. Uh, we he, start- was tro- he was a trialist, was he? Yeah. We started Archie McPhee up front, the Scottish striker. 
the Highland League superstar, as he will now be known, if we sign him. Uh, he missed two or three really good chances, and he probably scored the hardest one of the of the lot. Just before half time, he placed it nicely in the corner. Good finish. Jeez, Nanny McPhee will be proud. Yeah, Dylan Watts goes in the games against Lucan and this one. The Lucan one was a free kick and this one was just a long range shot. Two beauts. He's got it in the locker, hasn't he? Like, if these goals were scored in league games, we'd be talking about them for years. Mm. They were that good. And before last year, I, I tipped Graham Burke to be our top scorer and player of the year. Ooh, Prof has a hot so, take. So, Gar, I'm predicting Dylan Watts to be our MVP this year. Oh, could it be a Barney-esque prediction with Borky? Yeah. Remember he predicted that? I don't know if he'd be a top scorer. It's one of those where you're, you're kind of, I hope he's not in that. I hope someone else scores him, yeah. a striker. But I think he will notch 11 or 12 goals. The prof with the prediction. Prof's predictions. So he's going with what's 10 of them penalties. Well, I'm going to say Trevor Clark, player of the year. That's my prediction. Yeah. I really think he's going to have a cracking season. Well, Trevor Clark... Against um, what was it? Bray. He started on the left wing, and Cabot was at left back. And then they swapped, and then Clark actually scored his goal from left back. I think you and I agree, don't we? That yep. we we would rather he start there. Definitely, yeah. I think his runs from deep are a lot more effective. Mm. And listen, he's the most exciting player on the, in in the league on his day. He's just he's, he's fantastic. So it's great to see him back fit, and hopefully he stays injury free. So just just on Cove again, uh, Jack Byrne was excellent. Um, I loved I loved, loved the way he turns in the ball he's very very sharp looks like he can get us going at a moment's notice that sort of thing uh, Danny Carr scored right at the end their keeper made, made a made a holder he's growing his hair out by the way I saw that yeah and yeah Trevor had played the game earlier that morning against Stanford so other than him you would say that was very close to our strongest team I saw that and what way that did they set up because it seemed like there was four centre midfielders Mm. In the middle of the park, so did they play? Well, well Danny was in the wing, though. Well, Danny was in the wing. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm going to take in a preseason game because I think it's like, I think someone described it as like watching your dinner being cooked <laughs> through the oven. I don't think I want to. I'm not sure if I want to see it. No, I'm done now. Yeah. As I said, to everyone, I'm match free for Waterford. I don't need any more preseason friendlies. So it's Camp TV at Rollstone this coming Saturday. Morning, and another friendly is confirmed for later that afternoon. So, Galway United away is in Salt Hill Devon's ground, 6 pm kickoff. And we potentially could be having a bus, it's not looking good at the moment. In the next day or two, we will announce whether it's cancelled or not. So, we'll keep you posted. But even if it's cancelled, you're thinking of running one maybe possibly for Harps away, Harps away. 22nd of March. Yeah, that could be it. Was going to be a trial run. And it won't be a, it won't be an ongoing thing. It might be just every so often we could run a bus, you know. Just it'd be for podcast purposes, just to kind of have a bit of a, a a different slant on the podcast and say that we ran a bus and we had a bit of a show and more. That's that's it more than anything. So, the amount of people that came up to me and said, "Carol, what's the story with the bus?" I was like, "I don't know. That's scary." <laughs> we are different people. <laughs> so Brentford B the following Friday they will be coming over, and we'll be taking in a game there. And Bluebell Lenser Senior Cup, no day for that one yet. Uh, no Greg Bulger in any of these friendlies as well, so uh, hopefully he's not injured or there's something we don't know about. How much do you think Bulger will feature in the team? Right, I'm going to say it now, I don't think he will. 
I think it's possible he might feature in the likes of maybe like the likes of Dundalk away something like that where we need, we need to need a grafter. kind of batten down or the hatches are a grafter but other than yeah. that I think he was signed just before Jack Bourne we, we, we re-signed him and I don't think we would have re-signed him if Jack Bourne became available before him so I think, I think you're banging the money there. I think that might make sense yeah um, Bazunu he set for his move to Man City sooner than expected so we won't have him at the start of the season which is unfortunate because he's been out training at Sunday mornings 9 o'clock as well so he's really dedicated he's a player I'd love to have seen more of and um, the news broke a few days ago that David McMillan has been made available for transfer by St Johnston so our message to the board is go get him <laughs> we need a goal scorer but then again do we have a goal scorer let's have a little mini debate if we start the season without signing a striker and Danny Carr up top would you be necessarily upset or would you be content? Well, here's what I have to say. I, I've actually not been on Robert Shaw much the last two months because I just I feel like it's going to be 42 threads on why haven't we signed a striker? Where's yeah. a striker? My thought is if we get the service to Danny Kerr and he stops playing so deep, Danny Kerr has potential to be that striker. 100%, yeah. If he gets the service. And um, which he... Look at the players behind him now. McAniff. Mm. Look at Bourne. Look at Finn. Look at Watts. Look at... Look at Aaron Bulger. Like, the players that are there. Brandon Cavanagh. There, that is... Assists upon assists mm. there. So, it's and it's all about if we get motoring and playing with them in the team. And I think we're going to get a lot of goals from midfield. I mentioned oh, I Watts. So. I think Watts and hopefully McAniff and, and Bourne will chip in. Uh, the thing is though like you said you, you played green to start in Waterford you think so yeah I I have a feeling Brazzer is there's going to be a striker signed and I think he looks at Carr as being the option on the left wing yeah or Trevor Clark or or, or Sean Cavanagh but there you, there you go I mean let's say you do put Clark, Carr on the left Trevor Clark left full really put Cavanagh you put Cavo on the right and have him whipping balls in. It's it's a headache I, selection. I think that's, I think that's selection called, headache. I think the left flank is cemented. I really do. I think Trevor Clark left back and Sean Cavanagh left wing. Yeah. I think them two and Manus are like the only assurances and, and Lee Grace on the whole team. Yeah, you think Cavo's one of them? I yeah. possibly could disagree with you there. But then again, we don't have a, a left winger that has cemented a place down, do we? You can't look at Cavo... 30 on last season he was playing out of position yeah and I think he's more motivated this year I think it's going to be a big year for him yeah I think he is better but he's, he's utilising him in the to- their opposite half so I think that's the best bet but remember, it's what a squad remember we were accused of throwing the kitchen sink at uh, Sean Gannon yeah at Dundalk you're saying the message to the board is that we should throw all sorts of household appliances oh, the chair and McMillan the tumble dryer fucking everything <laughs> Granny's fucking Zimmer friend. <laughs> Everything, get it out. Because uh, we mentioned Joe Garmany before. He ended up signing a new contract at Cliftonville. Yeah. So then we were thinking, are we waiting on McMillan? This uh, lad Draper, a New Zealand international striker. Possibly in rumour manufactured on Rovers chat as well. So let's yeah. remember that. Uh, he was mentioned. Uh, Courtney Doofus at Waterford yeah. was mentioned. So we were kind of working our way down the list after McMillan, and then suddenly McMillan's made available. So, so will he want to come home? Yeah. Will he want to stay in Scotland or come home? Yeah, but if he gets an offer from Scotland, let's be honest, he'd probably stay there. 
so that's what it's all about and um yeah so next up we have shola ayula an ex-stoke and irish youth international he's been training with us and we were linked with young fullback barry cotter who was snapped up from limerick by mick mccarty's ipswich at the time and he was uh, apparently very good when he was playing for him so the i'm not sure if he's still like yeah the name i look like i'm not sure if he's still training i'm not sure how it's working out so um, he would provide good cover but then again we do have Alex Dunn who seems to be able to do a job there but I think an extra centre half would kind of ease the fears so if Grace gets injured I mean we're not just stuck with two centre halves there and Sean Callan because Sean Callan be relatively unexperienced there so my starting two would be Grace and J.O.B. Peacock's cover so but Garrett I can allay everyone's fears because I've been told that we, we have signed a striker and his name is Father Romeo Sincini <laughs> 17 caps for the, for the Vatican prof. Only takes two nurses to get him up out of a chair. Only drinks the finest wine. <laughs> Romeo Sensini, the saviour of Rovers. That's the club news for the time being. And we have our two fantastic guests coming up. And we have our guests today. We have Mick the Whack Cairns and Robert the Gog Goggins. So, uh, lads, you're very welcome to Johnny Blues. Glad to be here. Great to be here. Whack, you've been here before and you've given us some memorabilia. Been here before and stumbled out the door, yeah. <laughs> um, it was a great day, great bit of crack, I have to say. What do you think, Robert? What do you think of the memorabilia? It's your first time here, Robert. Well, I had seen some photographs and whatever, so this place is famous as it is. I was just thinking there that you could actually maybe call the podcast Tales from the South East Stand. <laughs> not, <laughs> not a bad so, show, yeah, Robert. Not, not a bad show. show. Yeah, it's play, play, yeah. Best of all worlds. Yeah. Okay, so the Tal Echo have confirmed that the council... Uh, work is going to begin on the north stand in the third quarter of 2019 bringing the capacity up to 10,000 so Wack will you be involved in that one? Um, look it's like everything from the council or any council around the country it'll go out to public tender and then you, then you, then you jump on the, onto the t- to tendering and you see where it takes you if, if it's the main contractor that done the south stand there's every chance we'll, we'll, we'll be sent to tender and price the job accordingly you yeah, know? should just take one look at it and then they bring you back yeah, on the record yeah yeah and then, then Stick a figure on it against another three or four contractors and see where it comes out of wash. It looked like a proper little ground then, Robert, on the four stands. Well, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's not the original plans, but, you know, I think at one stage we thought that uh, it would end up being a two-sided ground. So to see the third stand itself going in, I think, is absolutely fantastic. It gives it that great stadium feel about it. So you can just imagine what it's going to be like when the fourth stand is completed. It's going to be fantastic. And then the rumours of a social club going into the north stand as well. So um, that was all... Early, it's all early days, but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. So uh, Robbers are celebrating 10 years of Tata this year, of course. So uh, this is going to be something of a historical episode, this one. All right, so we're going to be reading from Robert's book, uh, which he came out with over six years ago, called Chronological History of Shamrock Rovers. Uh, still available in all good megastars <laughs> uh, reading a little bit as well from We Are Rovers by Owen Rice and a bit from Tal Time by, by McDerrah Ferris and myself so, the prof so we also uh, got some pictures saved my phone from Jimmy Conroy Robert you know his like massive treasure trove of, of photographs <laughs> I, just, I searched the word Tala and all this gold came up with pictures of Rovers fans and like celebrating mini victories planning permissions and all that sort of stuff and the first result from Tata coming up was uh, John Byrne holding a rover scarf over the Tata site which was just a dirt field at that point 
So the camera was behind him and he was holding the scarf up. This was like May 1996. So in your book, literally the first mention of the word Tala was the 20th of March 1996. Yeah, so 20th of March 1996, the Community and Parks section of the South Dublin County Council learned for the first time that the building of a soccer stadium was being planned for the Tala area. And then we move on to April, and the Tala Echo newspaper reported that the League of Ireland Club St James's Gate were in discussions with South Dublin County Council concerning the prospect of building a soccer stadium in Tala. And uh, any of you guys remember? Yeah, no, initial? no, that's that's bang on. The, the gate initially, I think, were offered a site. Uh, they're offered two sites. They're offered a site up in Jobstown. We're also offered a site that is present. Jobstown was that where the, yeah. uh, the Astro is now. It's up for the. I don't know the identification exactly of it, but it's up near the Jobstown Inn, somewhere up right, past yeah, that. Right, yeah, um, But obviously, any any sign thinking man would say, no, we're going to take it, the, the site that's there because of the the, the, the the structures that's there, like the Lewis, the roads, everything, and it's right beside a, a massive town centre. So it was a no-brainer for that site to, to go into place. But um, the gate weren't really long-term really involved in it because fairly quickly... Uh, Rovers were approached through Pat Bourne and that was the stage of things changing on at the boardroom level with um, correct me if I'm wrong Robert but with, with John McNamara parting company and then Alan McGrath and Brian Kearney coming in as the Premier uh, group that's right yeah. and that was that was also the time that we left the RDS <coughs> to head to Martin Stadium and then that's when the, the, the stadium really muted and, and gathered momentum on, on, on the planning initiative. Yeah, we didn't go to Martin Stadium straight away. That was a couple of years afterwards. Um, mm. I think that came three years after. Um, yeah, you are right there, Mick, um, about Pat Bourne was the connection there because I remember uh, I was a contributor for the Irish Soccer Magazine and I we interviewed Pat, who was, I think, general manager at St. James's Gate. And that was the first time that I had ever heard anything about Pat possibility. Bourne was. Oh, I didn't it know was, that. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it was the first time I'd ever heard the possibility of a stadium being built in Tala. But it was supposed to be a stadium for St. James's Gate. They ended up leaving the league. Being, yeah, they did. Uh, they went bust, as you know, or they, or they left, whatever. Um, around that same time, I remember it was coming up towards the end of the 95-96 season and John McNamara called me over about an hour before... I think it was our final league game, which was against Athlone on Easter Sunday. And that was the first time that I heard that, officially, that John was going to be selling out from Rovers mm. and that a new consortium would be taken over. And he also mentioned, if my memory serves me right, about uh, the possibility of a stadium up in Tala. I didn't make the connection at first because the James's Gate team was still sort of going on there. Yeah. But everything kind of moved very, very quickly after that. Um, I don't know whether you were there or not, Mick, but it was some of us were called up to a meeting in the Spawell uh, one summer evening, yeah, and Pat Bourne was, Born there, was yeah. there, and he yeah. explained everything, and he explained that it was these investors. We only knew them as the Premier Computer Group. group we didn't yeah. know them as individuals yeah. or anything like that. Uh, Sounds quite shady. Sounds like a bit of a shell. Um, shell company. In fairness to them, like, like they did come in fairly quick, and they drew up super plans, and they jumped ship quickly out of St James's Gate, because... First of all, they knew they hadn't that fan base yeah. to make it happen, and St James get that stage were, 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 were a first division club, but they were they were going nowhere really. They, they had a bit of success getting into a FA Cup semi final, which go United Betterman to, to, to yeah. 1991. But um, Pat did show us the plans, um, and Alan McGrath was at that meeting, and so was Brian Kearney 
up in the spiral and that was the real start of they'd then taken ownership of Shamrock Rovers yeah. and the club office was in the spiral and everything started to mushroom then from, from that position and just on the the topic of uh, McNamara's era it be- that became known as the end of, of his era of the McNamara era and uh, morale at the club was at rock bottom as uncertainty continued over the future ownership of the club and ru- rumours were flowing that we wouldn't be able to continue to play the RDS and uh, we'd been there for six seasons so your your th- your thoughts on the RDS era? Um, initially it was very successful and it was a great place to go to but the crowds dwindled after the first league title and it was the only league title we won there it was a big venue for a League of Ireland club, a real big venue. I mean, there was stands on stands. I mean, even more than there is there today. Horse injections. Yeah, and, and once the grandstand was knocked down opposite the Anglesey stand, mm. the atmosphere completely went out of the ground in the last season. Only didn't had it? a capacity of 4,500 then yeah. when that was down. Yeah. 4,500 Yeah, it went way down. And I think it was, wasn't cheap as well, but I think John has kind of pushed as far as he could on the club. And by the way, it has to be said, John McNamara done great stuff wrestling the club out of the coins hands and people always say where did the club go wrong in general and this very graphic description wrestling it out of the coins hands that's pretty well, much well, what it was absolutely it? because I mean people have to realise that these are the people that these are the demise of Rovers in, 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 in 1987 as far as I'm concerned and, and I think everyone else would agree with me but the other people that came along and kept the club, club going they don't know the love and the heart of, of, of the club. No one ever made that now of the football club. The never and they never that. will. No, they sold, they sold it. I think, I think I'm right on this one, Robert. The club only actually owned in Milltown for one day. They got the lease from the Jesuits, telling them they're going to redevelop it. They put her into the club's um, Shamrock Rovers 1972 Limited. And the next day they transferred it, the, the, the ownership of the lease to another company. And that's that's what they did. But they were always intent on, on, on pushing it. But people have to realise as well, the Kilcoyne family, Brent Holmes, sorry, Healy Holmes, Valley Ice Cream, uh, Glen Abbey, they, they put loads of businesses to the wall. Mm. So they knew what they were doing at the start. But in fairness to John McNamara, he went and met the Kilcoyne's, got, the, got, the, got a limited company. That's all he got. He got a couple of jerseys, balls and bibs. We picked sure up Harry the, Kenny and Jody Bourne. Nothing else. Yeah. Wasn't the memorabilia thrown the skip? Absolutely. But John done a great job. Tell us a bit about that because that's something that, that really annoyed fans. Like there was, there was fans who actually picked memorabilia over skip. Like I'm talking yeah. pennants. Valencia, there was a trophy that we played. Uh, was it, was it who, what club was it we played from Spain? Was it real? No. Zaragoza. Real Zaragoza, was it, Robert? We played them in the Cup Winners Cup, yeah. I think. That stuff, Bayern Munich as yeah. well. There was loads of stuff that was found in a skip book. Look at they they had no love for Shamrock Rovers. So they tried to buy Duncondra before before they bought Rovers in seventy two. Yeah. And uh, they, it was just a property play eventually for them, you know. But so they destroyed the ground. I mean, Robert, you remember in Milltown we, we fundraised for the floodlights. And the floodlights were taken down on a Sunday morning by Brendan Hall, SEG Electrical, and they were sold and shipped up north. Well, the guarantors, I think, um, for the loans withdrew. That was uh, people like Ed Green and Jimmy Keane and so on. They actually guaranteed the loan for the, the floodlights. The Kilcoyne didn't put those, no. those lights into office. So but we fundraised as well. Yeah, well, we did. We had members draw and everything yeah. like going for that. Ed Green actually headed up this committee. He did. Um, I think once the guarantors withdrew their, their guarantees for the loan, 
that it then became into the hands of the Kilcoins then and they just got rid of them as quickly mm. as they could. It's all everything that they yeah. could. And also, also as a as a member of one of the members of the Shamrock Rovers supporters club, me being an electrician, we ended up fundraising two thousand pounds, right? A lot back then. A lot back then we done race nights and I put in a PA system on the new floodlight columns. And they took that down and sold it. But we didn't have no leg to stand on because we didn't have any legal agreements between us and the club. So you we did that as this, a fan, you decided, I'll, do it, I'll, I'll stick this in. Let's put this in and we fundraised. And they took it and sold it? They took it down and sold everything. I we left with nothing. The, I remember the Sunday afternoon, PA system. you actually tested the PA system. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was your album or not, but we had uh, the ground was empty because we were supposed to play Celtic in pre-season friendly that day. But we drew them in the European Cup in the meantime. So the match was obviously called off. So uh, you were up there in the ground that day and I was on the far side listening to the testing and uh, Christy Hilliard was the key holder. He was there as well and uh, you were playing Michael Jackson's Chiller. Bang on. <laughs> you know? Well, never forget it. 100% right. Thriller, yeah. The, the album Thriller. And I was up on the ladder on my own. Like We had this big sign which said next game is against and I was up on the ladder trying to clean it and whatever, listening to you doing testing, testing. Yeah, testing one, two, Thriller. Express. But the thing was... That's what the supporters fundraised that money. We put it in, and that was taken down and shipped on. And they made money to wrap it up. But look at to go back to John McNamara, he's yeah. done, done his best. Just the thing about the RDS was that um, at that stage, I think a lot of the league clubs had moved on to playing on Friday nights mm. because Sunday afternoon football was dead. And this was one of the biggest problems that we had at the, mm. the RDS. Now, Rovers didn't have floodlights at the, at the RDS, as you know. But there was um, an agreement with the FEI and B Sky B, who were then showing live matches, and these were being broadcast into the Republic. Uh, they had a lot of subscribers and so on. So under I don't know whether it's UEFA rules or whatever it was, but they came to some agreement that B Sky B actually paid to put floodlights really? into all the League of Ireland grounds. But I think the RDS was too big. Whatever you would yeah. need. It's, yeah. I think most clubs were getting for about 120 grand probably would have been half a million to put them into the RDS because we're so big it, 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 the, the floodlights in the RDS was priced and it was it was about 320,000 which the club didn't have and the RDS weren't going to invest at that stage but the other thing about the RDS at one stage when, when the clocks went back the game starts to start kicking off too early two o'clock so killer, it was a killer yeah. you know yeah. what I mean yeah. it was a killer we'll move so, back to where April I think it was April two. 1996 and we'd Hoops fan and student Paul Thomas Kempes and uh, he was responsible for ensuring that Shamrock Rovers became the first Irish football club to have a website as he quickly developed the concept so although consistent of only one page it was an idea that was to quickly catch on at other clubs so this was early days but I mean how important was the internet in the mid 90s especially for dialogue connections to, to get scraps of news on the stadium well it wasn't really because I think you just said it there, Gary, dial-up connections, you'd be trying to dial in and you'd be trying 30 times later and it would still keep timing out and whatever you were kind of queuing up really to get onto the internet. I didn't know what the internet was myself personally, I thought it was two curtains that came together or something. <laughs> I had no idea what the internet was. And uh, so we moved on to the 20th of May in 1996 and South Dublin County Council were informed that Shamrock Rovers were the League of Ireland club behind the proposed stadium for Atala. And during the summer months, the McNamara era came to an end with Premier Computers, as we spoke about, a group fronted by Alan McGrath, Mark Hill and Brian Kearney took over the club and formed a new board of directors. Pat Bourne was appointed as full-time commercial manager. A shop unit and offices were leased at the Spawell Complex in Temple Oak. So things were starting to look up. Oh, absolutely. And that's when the, we really said, look, 
this is this is we all have to get behind this because the homeless years we, we, we were getting fed up at that stage. We just needed somewhere to say, look, this is our Shamrock Rovers home and um very quickly then I think they went for went for planning and then all the saga started happening of what we had to go through to get there eventually, but it was it was a it was a tough long road after that, wasn't it? Yeah. Then we move on to July and his new club chairman, Alan McGrath, formally announced that Shamrock Rovers had opened negotiations with South Dublin County Council for the lease of the council-owned land opposite the square and uh, for construction of a 10,000 all-seated stadium. McGrath predicted that all going well, phase one of construction will be completed within a year. It's amazing how the initial plans for every stadium ever built in Ireland had at least like 5,000 added on to what it actually became. So this was 10,000 until it became six. Although it potentially can be ten, hmm. I think I think one of the reasons that we started at ten and then it went down was because at that stage uh, the principal of the school was objecting, and the, on oh, the day of the oral hearing, he's on our list of hatred. We don't to him, don't worry. Hmm. That's where we had. Yeah, to, it came it came down to from the ten to six at the on board planola hearing hmm. because that was one of the stipulations, and the gun was really put to the club's head. Like you either accept this or you don't. That doesn't so happen. They, they had they yeah. had to accept the capacity of six thousand. Yeah. And then in August, with the tenancy at the RDS having come to an end, the club found itself back at Talca Park once again after a short-term deal had been negotiated with Shelbourne FC. Hoops fans, although not entirely pleased with the prospect of playing at John Condra venue once again, accepted the move in the knowledge that Rollers were putting together a plan to move to a permanent new home in Talca. And the dismissal of Alan O'Neill as manager, Terry Everson resigned the following day. Only a few weeks into the new season brought the wrath of the Hoops fans onto the board of directors. Chairman Alan McGrath issued an apology for the manner in which the dismissal came about, accepting blame. The inexperience on his part was to blame, and Pat Bourne took over as manager. So what, what can you remember about the short reign? Um, I, I do remember they went on a pre-season tour to uh, America. And they came back and things were starting to go well. And all of a sudden, I think we were a game or two in, that um, Alan O'Neill got the sack. There were only League Cup games as yeah. well. Three, yeah. three group games. Mm. Uh, the fan base was sacked, shocked. I mean, we couldn't believe they were sacked so soon. But, um, Alan finished, finished very, very strong strongly. as well, didn't he? Yeah. Finished very strongly the previous season. Yeah, yeah. But, but Alan look, was very diplomatic when he was he, at your he, show. He, yeah. I think so. Yeah, he's a gentleman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but look, it was a pity because... Alan was such a, such a hero among the Rovers fans, and Terry had had won the league in '94 with the club as well, and he was super, super guy. But it was just was it a shock? Of, I mean, he he was still in pre-season. Yeah, Did, would you have seen it as a coup? Maybe. Well, we had Pat Bourne in the background doing a commercial, so we we thought we'd a great little setup and things were moving in the right direction, trying to get our own ground. And these American investors yeah, were hovering around. Yeah, the they were, but like never came to anything, Carol. But. Um, we just, we just, there's nothing we could have done about how it was done and it was dusted before we heard he sacked their sack, that's it, they're gone. But yeah. it was a bit strange, wasn't it, Robert? Very strange, but look, we all might have our own ideas on it. We're live on air, so I won't <laughs> say anything. <laughs> and we're still in August, and South Dublin County Council asked Robert to include a running track around the pitch at the proposed new stadium, which just like, like to add, I despise running tracks around football uh, football pitches. Derek Tracy uh, said, like diving into the long jump. <laughs> yeah, what did he say about Martin Stadium? Yeah. He said, you'd be tackling out wide and you'd end up doing the long jump. <laughs> yeah. And he said, the club stated that such a facility was not part of the plan, and gladly so. 
And then the 18th of September, in an interview with Jerry Thornley in the Irish Times, New Hoops chairman Alan McGrath confirmed that the new consortium paid out 200000 to acquire the club from the previous board. And the costs involved related mainly to outstanding debts accrued by the outgoing administration. And um, do, you, do you remember that as well? The, the outgoing, the 200000 costs, would that be, that be about right? Be I think so, yeah. I think that would be about right, yeah. Um, like he, like Alan McGrath and Brian Kearney and Mark Hill, they bought her off John McNamara, and then it was down to when 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 they jumped ship, it was Joe Caldwell that came in, and I'll never forget the night. Um, Joe Joe bought the club, and he was there a while, and we were trying to give him a hand in the background, but Joe went off to meet Alan McGrath, and Brian Kearney, met over in Dublin Airport, and myself, John Brain, uh, Jack Wilson. And um, a couple more of us were in the spa, we were having a meeting, and Joe came in and he said, Lads, I've just bought the club and I own the club now. We were dumbfounded. Just like that? Just like that. He Lads, came in with his, and by the way, I bought Rovers. He came in with his briefcase, opened it up, and said, I've bought the club, which we were shocked because we thought we'd all get involved and buy it together. But he did it, and look, for whatever reason, he did it. but it didn't take long and then Joe was getting snowed under he was it was. I mean to run a club on your own is, is nearly impossible of the magnitude of Rovers and then we ended up being kind of cohorted onto the board but you done it in the best intentions but it, it, you could never run a football club on your own no, hard, I think um, Joe wanted as much control over this as he could in so far that um, there had been problems at board level during the RDS era yeah and uh, I think Jack and Joe had found themselves on the same side and it got pretty nasty. And I think that Joe learned a, you know, a lesson from that, mm. which is probably why he was being so cautious about it. Mm. So he was kind of, you could say he was coy about letting people in? Uh, yeah. Um, he, you know, I mean, Joe was fantastic. Joe was a man you could stop at any time. Anybody could stop him and talk to him. Oh, 100%. But, but Joe wanted to keep a tight rein on things. He I did. Think. Um, nothing was to happen that he but didn't. It didn't do him any good. Influence. It didn't do him any good in the end. God love him. But um, look, I actually remember, Mick, I don't know whether you will remember or not, but it was within a pretty short time, i say less than a year, that Alan McGrath started feeling the pressure because I think the Premier Computer people had gone out of it at that stage. Uh, there were other people don't know whether I can name them or not but they're named in the books and whatever but um, they're really only in, interested in for the, the property and yeah property the plan, plan for the stadium wasn't just to build a stadium there was supposed to be commercial elements to it as well absolutely so these were developers professional developers they weren't messing around they wanted we also heard remember we also heard about a petrol station right after the Plaza Hotel on the Greenfield side yeah. that the schoolboys playing every now and yeah. again but the council said there was no way they're ever going to give them an inlet there to go in and out. Not off the... Not off the motorway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But well, just there was another Mick, property play, there was. Um, I was up in the office one morning, I'd say it was around April um, 1998, I mean, it's only a short period after, 1997, short period after these people had bought in. And it looked like Alan McGrath was in the office all the time and he's beginning to feel the pressure. And you were up there in that office that morning and you were kind of saying to Alan McGrath, look, we need to do this, we need to do that for the club. And he got very, um, just became very rude about you, did, yeah. you and me. Yeah. And you came down to my house later in the afternoon and you said to me, I'm doing nothing for Rovers ever again. I'm yeah. not having anything to do with these people anymore. You were visibly upset, you were. So I rang Joe Cowell and I told him what happened. And Joe said, uh, look, I'm going to ring Alan McGrath because that's, that's not good enough. 
and then I think that Joe rang you and got your side of the story and whatever. Did, yeah, yeah. And that incident may have influenced Joe in some way or other in, you know, his decision to take over the club. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. And then we have November. You might remember this one, lads. A group of hoops enthusiasts operating under the banner of the SRFC Social Committee announced plans to erect a monument on Milltown Road where Glenmalore Park once stood. Do you remember anything about that committee? I do, I do. Um, Tell us a bit about it. Robbie Tormley, John Doyle. Um, what are their names? Would you remember Noel there, Robbie? was on it. Noel Bourne. Uh, in fairness to the lads, they went off and they sort, sorted out that... Which is something we don't have anymore at the moment, the social No, community. we don't. But what they did was they went there. What's the right way to actually put up a monument? How, how would you go about it? You don't just arrive with a truck. Yeah. And stick a bit of, uh, <laughs> a bit of a marble there and that's it. So they went through the right channels with Dublin Corporation at the time and they, 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 they sussed it all out. It took nearly a year to get through everything. Yeah, but as you said, the city council were very supportive of it. Absolutely, they yeah. were brilliant. Um, the idea actually came around, I think I actually put the proposal at the, the meeting that we would put a, a plaque on the site and then Rob Tormey said well I have an idea that we'll put a statue up onto it and I thought well that's a bit ambitious but uh, Joe was very supportive of it as well so we adopted that still stands to this day and it was a great idea and I remember remember Robbie and I think Noel Bourne went up to Dundrum Monuments and they got the price came back to us and we we got a bit of fundraising I think it was about 8,000 euros but it was well worth it because it's the last thing that's there forever Oh yeah, definitely, Brilliant. definitely. Um, like we all do, we all do our Milltown march, <laughs> and we have a bit of crack on the way up to. Mm. We were actually concerned that we mightn't get that statue put up because at that time, um, and probably still now, the city council were um, not too keen to just let anybody put statues up anywhere. Apparently, it's quite a difficult thing to get done. It is, but they were very supportive of us. But they were Steve also they were also very concerned that most most uh, major roads into the city are, are down for widening. But where, where, oh, they, yeah, oh. down for widening. Like, like they're having issues at the moment around around the city of bus corridors. But where it was being planted and where it is today, it it, it avoids that widening. It is, it's it's, it's, not, it's a widish road, yeah. isn't it? And that was one of the issues to get her over with the yeah. corporation, which worked. And I never forget Bertie coming along to unveil it, which was which was great. <laughs> we had a great day and a Did great. Did after? We had a great night in the dropping well, hadn't we? Absolutely. We asked the, um, the guards in Donnybrook, we informed them of the event that would be taking place and that the T-shirt would be attended and whatever. And uh, they didn't really take us very seriously at all. They, no. thought, there'd be, they thought there'd be nobody at it. So very quickly, um, like a couple of hundred people started forming well, around. They saw a big gang of hoops. And next to the guards, trying to do a job control. <laughs> and Bertie arrived in a helicopter. He, he did not. Yeah, he did. He, he, he dropped into the Jesuits at the corner of Milltown Road, Sandyford Road. And bought up in a, in a car, yeah, because that stage the Celtic Tiger was going and he was probably in Kerry that night. Yeah, oh, do you know what I mean? And that, those those that, famous yeah. bank accounts yeah, Joe, never existed. Joe, <laughs> it's important to say here to stage that Joe Cobble had actually built a very close relationship with Bertie Hearn. Yeah. And that stood to us in the end, like with uh, the sports minister, John O'Donoghue and whatever. Like, you know, we if we hadn't had that support from Bertie Hearn, you know. You know what happened? Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't have known. Exactly. And another thing that was important, and it's got this... People uh, of my age will remember Jimmy Kane, Big J, Big J. This name popped up in a conversation. Uh, I'd never heard of Jimmy. Jimmy Kane was a great Shamrock Rovers man, and he hasn't been mentioned for years. But him and Bertie Hearn were very, very close friends. So if if Bertie ever heard anything about Rovers, his first words is, "How's Jimmy?" and what's happening with Jimmy? Because Jimmy used to canvass for him when he was coming up through the local elections. Yeah. So it had built up a huge connection there. And another thing that was never mentioned, and it was told to me that John McNamara was offered a site in Tallaght 
before just after Milltown went and he didn't go with it. But that is that has to be on the record somewhere. We were offered a sight in Tala. I said no. Yeah, in nineteen eighty nine. Well, he just probably seen it was just too much, and yeah. the RDS is there. Let's pay the rent. Tala wouldn't exactly have been developed at that yeah. stage. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but Bertie, Bertie did get a sight and say, "Look, if you want it, we can we can get you a sight up there." But it didn't happen for another reason. But Bertie was very good to Rovers. I have to say that. Yeah. I reckon either one of you were at this one. So, twelfth uh, of December, plans and drawings for the new stadium in Tala were unveiled at the launch of the nineteen ninety six Shamrock Rovers yearbook at Malloy's Inn in Tala. Ron, you must have been there, Mike. Oh, we were there, Chase. We were there all night. <laughs> we had a great night, a great day. But uh, yeah, I remember it well. It was, it was, it was a round dinner hour. It was launched, and the plans were there, and it was all fanfare. But it was, it was a good day. We, we, to see everyone happy, and they were, this is going to happen. It was a change, wasn't it? It was a change. You know, we didn't know. Uh, we, we thought the cost would have been, I think it was about two million mentioned or three million, but we thought the money was in place, so we were all happy. Once we got through the planning process, yeah, never forget it, yeah. The 10th of February 1997, as expected, the South Dublin County Council, which fully supported plans by Shamrock Rovers to build a new stadium in Talla, effectively cleared the way for the building of the stadium by agreeing the transfer of 12.18 acres, approximately the land of, of land on Weistown Way to SROC for the purpose of building a stadium there. And then two days later, 12th of February, the planning application for the building of the stadium was lodged with STCC yeah remember it well remember the planning application going up on the green fence as you drive up before you turn around at the, at the mall and it was just along there and I remember going taking a picture of the planning permission going up it was just marvellous just marvellous we're, we're going home and tell me this another land there's a little plot of land just behind the east stand and it looks like it could. I, I always thought it's, it's like a football pitch is that part of the you, plans. You you're, talk, you're talking about where, where the little schoolboys play there. Yeah. What's that was initially part of the plans when Mulden got the lease and they were hoping to put a petrol station there. Oh, is that where it was? Yeah, that was that was the site and they were going to get in and out to service the petrol station. But uh, So whose baby is that land now? Who? I think that fell back into South Dublin County Council. Right. Obviously it did with the because lease. Because it'd be, it'd be fantastic for like a little town centre or something along the lines of that in the round, you know? Like yeah. Something that could attract more people. There was talk at one stage of the club getting the fenced in and using it as a proper training facility. There you go, That's what, it looked like it would be perfect yeah. for that, yeah. but yeah. the road's down yeah. now, don't we? So as I said, the lads, there's very little football talk today, but we do have one quote from uh, John Dorney. This is from uh, March 97. He says, For me personally, the high point of the decade was a match against Dundalk that saved us from relegation. The Hoops travelling support took over Oriel Park for the night, making it like a home game for Rovers, and two goals from Tony Cousins and one from Derek Tracy banished the bad times at least for a while remember it well he says the final goal was a breakaway ending in Tracy diving in to head Robert's third and clinching goal I was squashed under a tide of delirious bodies that the docks all stand <laughs> yeah. in the final minutes we just stood and sang we shall not be moved meaning the team was staying up but also that we the fans kept alive the spirit and history of the club we weren't going anywhere it's this passion of the fans that keeps Shamrock Rovers in existence in times like these it's just as well because it's all we have. I think that match was a turning point actually that season because it was coming towards the end of the season and we were looking like we were going to be relegated to be honest. So to go up to Royal Park and the team gave a fantastic performance that did it. Blood and guts, super. It? It super. Fantastic. Blood and guts, not something that we have been, not, not a phrase we've spoken much lately. Kick out that mouse, yeah. yeah. No, but they did what they had to do that night and they did it well. <laughs> Kick out that mouse, yeah. So it's your back kip. 
So 10th of April, South Dublin County Council granted planning permission for the proposed stadium on Hoystown Way. So we seem to be on our way at this point. So well, the momentum was building then, yeah. All yeah. good feelings. So 96-97 season, finished in 8th place, won the prestigious Leinster Your favourite cup, Prof. Yeah. An impressive 20 goals in all competitions by Tony Cousins. Almost single-handedly kept us up, didn't he? He was brilliant that year. But off the field, reality begins to dawn on the new consortium that took over the club less than 12 months ago, as losses incurred in the day's day running the club began to mount up. So at this point, it's it's a year in since Tadis first moved. We only thought we'd be in Talca for a season. We did. It wasn't going to be like the, the boycott season in 1987, where Kukoy was calling it to save the future. We were told we'd be in Talca for one season. But here we are, one year later, and Tadis was still only talk. I think we always felt that it never move as quickly as you always think that they will. So if we had to spend the second year in Talca Park, it wasn't going to be a problem. So long as we knew that work had started on the site up there. Yeah, but and that then, was the problem. Was there was no actual physical work going on? So that was that a concern? Oh, it was because it was just it was just I I never forget. Um, we got we got the site and um, I then was on a committee and Joe knew I was in a bit of a building background, so he said, uh, "Can you look at getting a fence around the site?" To protect it, make sure that it's ours. Yeah. And I said, right, I'll do that. And I'll also get a big sign up. I was the first Shamrock Rovers sign that ever went in that corner. My brother Brendan made the stale, and my other brother Peter made the sign. Lovely. And I got a got a cement mixer up there, and we put it up. Between one day. the lies, you could have done a stadium yourself. Yeah. I'd so say. we put we put the stale in, and we put the sign up. But I remember going up to Ballymount and collecting a check for twenty three thousand off Joe Cole. And um, and it was a Sloan Park check, and um, I engaged. TP fencing, met your man, went met one of the uh, out of the parks department to show us the boundary where we can put this fence, and we white chalked it around, right. and the lads put the fence in, and I paid them the money. So that was the first moment that this is the footfall we could stand in this go. site. Like the corner of the side, really. This is it? it, yeah. I was feeling great with, and everyone else was. I mean, the day we put the sign up, there was lads coming by in cars taking pictures, and just. This is real now, lads. This is it. We are on our way. Fuck the balls, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is on 1996 still, isn't it? Oh. This was the year after. And just to clarify, the Sloan Park was the company set up yeah. Yeah. between uh, the club, Shamrock Rovers, and uh, yeah. the developers, the investors, um, Jerry O'Reilly and Brian Kearney. And it yeah. was set up too for the development of the stadium. Hmm. So the 30th of April, uh, an appeal against the grant- granting of planning permission by SDCC for the building of the stadium was lodged by on-board Planala by Oldborn Community go. School. Now we were in the manure business and we knew it. And we knew it was going to be a tough, long road. Um, but I had a spy in the camp. My, my ma's brother, his daughter, was on a committee in Oldborn Community School. Mm. Lorraine and he organised a committee of all the all the parents to go against it not knowing so he was actively going around all the parents now think about the effort that takes yeah. actively going around yeah. parents it's hard enough to, con- to, to contact parents of, of kids but he actively contacted parents of random kids in the school to go against Shamrock Road to fight it to fight it to fight it and she was then feeding me everything that was going on which Lovely. was a help so we had a spy but he was in. He was he was happy enough to try and put it out of many obstacles in his ways. He could, wasn't he, Robert? 
Well, he did, and he found a couple of other serial objectors who shared his interests as well. They probably he was different Pat Bourne's list him, of hatred entry. Yeah. Wasn't yeah. He? What McCarthy done was he wrote to all the GA clubs. So what was his? What was it? it was John McCarthy? Was it Frank McCarthy? Frank McCarthy, principal head, of all bond headmaster. Yeah. yeah. And he wrote to the GAA clubs around the area. He got them all but one. And <laughs> who was the one he didn't get? I'll tell you who the one he was didn't get, and I'll tell you why he didn't get it. Right. My father-in-law is one of the founder members of Ballyball in St. John Endes. Now, we hate the bog ball. I have no yeah. interest in it. I, I, I'd rather go into a casket than go to that camp. But I told him what was going on. He said, no, that's not right. He said, and he, he's still, they still bring him back every so often because he's one of the only living, a couple of living members. But he went up to a committee mem- meeting and he told him, he says, listen, we didn't start this football, this, this GAA club to be start, stopping other sports uh, yeah. up in Tala. And they didn't put their, put their uh, signature, didn't. didn't. Right. Uh, you know who did, Robert. It was Marx, it was... St. Anne's, I think, was one of them. Um, could be corrected on that, though. Um, Crowley Nafer, um, obviously Thomas Davis, uh, Fawes, St. Jude's. Yeah, so they had a they lot were. of support. Yeah, exactly. But it has to be said, in fairness, to those clubs, that as time went, went on... Each of those actually pulled away from that then. They yeah. withdrew their objections, but Thomas Davis didn't. Yeah, because they were left standing on their own. Well, yeah. you know, we think that um, Thomas Davis were had become the voice of the Dublin County Board, stroke GAA, mm. basically. Mm. So you mentioned the school children from uh, from Old Bond. So the story was the stadium was to be built on council-owned land, which the school had been using for football pitches, and McCarthy, the headmaster, his objection was that the land was being taken away from local school children. So, so Roberts made assurances that the ground would always be made available to the school. And local politicians thought the stadium would be great for the locals, but still, they lodged their objection. But also, you've got to remember that at the back of the East End, that piece of land that you mentioned, uh, yeah. Gary Wright, that was still going to be available to the school. Mm. That wasn't being developed, which is a grand piece of land for... For them to do their activities during the day, and yeah. they still do it. They still use it sometimes. Oh, it's a football pitch and a half. Yeah, yeah it's a big yeah. one. So that was our argument. Listen, you're still going to have that piece of land for the kids. It's not going to stop the the development, you know. So when they came to you with a with an argument, you came with a solution, pretty much. You said, "There you go. That piece of land is still there. We're not going to take that. Mm-hmm. You you can use that. Plus, as 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 was said, the the stadium will be open to you to to um, yeah, whenever you want. Yeah." Uh, 30th of May, talks began between the Department of Education and South Dublin County Council with a view to arranging a land swap for the football pitch which was being used by Alban Community School but which was also included as part of the land for the overall stadium project. And the summer of 97, Mick Byrne was appointed as new manager and Pat Byrne returned to the administration side of the club as general manager and then we had the infamous Isle of Man tournament. That's now so this could take a, t- a quick turn, yeah, this, this conversation. The best of Mick was ever. great. We'd Mick in the Glenmalore. Big shout out to James Cook, who was very hospitable with us. I have one question only. Did you see Mark Kenny in the nip? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> was oh, it a sight yeah. to behold? Well, I, I, I remember that night, um, we ended up in a place. Did you see his two-footer on the beach? Seen the whole lot of it. It was incredible. <laughs> it was a, it was a marvellous night. But um, I do remember Mick Bourne starting to heave ho, trying to get through the the disco, the nightclub doors, because the bouncers weren't letting us in, and then they all started laughing. Said, "I ah, let them all in." The whole squad and about forty lads. Jesus. It was some night. It was the best away trip ever. So it's still said, and I think Jason Maloney, bit of a contributor at this stage, might as well give him the, the tag. Uh, he says it's his best away trip ever. It was fabulous, and I tell you, he's one been thing, everywhere. 
myself and Big Deck, Tommy Conroy. Um, I remember being in this pools are called Quids Inn. There was a turnstile at the door, right? You had to put a pound coin a in. Turnstile at yeah, the door. Pound. It was called Quids Inn, right? Right, brilliant. And uh, we played Preston that afternoon, the Monday afternoon, and then that night we all them Quids in. And the team got a night out. Well, every night they had out anyway. I heard. Did you hear? When I heard Daryl on the show, what he saying? He said they brought more shorts than football gear. I was down. I went. Remember going to the toilet and coming back out a little corridor, and Tommy Dunn ran up and jumped on me back. Right. And as he jumped on me back, I heard, oh, he got at me. He done his hamstring in. That's <laughs> a horse that he, was, he was out of action for weeks and weeks, and he was blaming me. And Mick Bourne was like, "What happened, Mick? I didn't see him. He just ran up from behind and jumped on me back, and he done his hammer in." <laughs> Injured by the whack. Yeah, <laughs> whack express. So September, Umbro Ireland were officially unveiled as new sponsors of Shamrock Rovers at a packed function held at Malloy's in Tallow Village. It was a double for the hoops. As new club sponsor, Buddy's DIY, Ross. This would have been unfailed. John Courtney, wouldn't it? Absolutely. John Courtney, yeah. So this is the beginning of our love affair with Woody's DIY, which lasted up until only a few years Can you ago. remember, anybody, anyone remember the origins of this deal and how it came about? I'll tell you exactly what happened. Tony Ennis was the man that opened the door for Shamrock Rovers to get the Woody's DIY right. sponsorship. We were looking around for sponsorship and uh, he made calls and he knew that Woody's DIY head office was across the road from our future home. And he made a contact in the end of getting it on to Peter Dolan, who was their commercial guy, and then Ray Coleman was the chief executive. And he hit gold and they went up and they made a presentation and Ray Coleman says, William. Knocked it out of the park. And yeah. they were brilliant sponsors. They were very good sponsors. Um, they actually took it quite seriously, like their ads in the program and stuff like that. It wasn't they weren't just sticking something in for the whole month mm. or for the whole season. They would actually insist on changing the ads quite regularly. Uh, Ray Coleman used to have a special message about Shamrock Rovers in the brochures that they used to send around all the doors, you know, yeah. for summer sales and Christmas things and all that. Uh, Ray would have his message in the inside cover. You know, for consumers to read, and he'd always have this piece at the bottom, like mentioning Shamrock Rovers. The, the and and, and the finish, the finish with Woody's, I have to say, they were brilliant sponsors, but they were there in the bad times. So when we when we got into Tala and we won something with their name on the jersey, I was so happy for them because oh. other sponsors would have jumped ship. They didn't. They stuck in. They did st- stay there and fair use them because I don't think anybody would have argued if they had said, like, no. look, we were sponsoring you on the basis that you were going into the stadium. Mm. But they did stay with us and they were very generous because anytime there's anything going on, like fundraising or player of the year events or whatever, and we had raffles or whatever, they'd always throw loads of stuff in, like streamers. They were great sponsors, <laughs> lads. But they were, they were active sponsors. They were really, really aware. And... and to see, to see the joy in their face when we go into the Europa League where Woody's DIY, that, that said to their bosses in the graphing group above them, wasn't this worth it? Yeah, look, wasn't this worth it, you know? And I think one of the other things that swung it for Woody's and it's probably never been mentioned or given credit was the fact that we had the schoolboy section up in Tallaght because Ray Coleman was a massive supporter of this and a great believer in this and the club had... Uh, Combined with uh, merged with Tallatown AFC in 1996 and then became known as Shamrock Rovers. But this is where we inherited ready made with 12, 13 schoolboy teams and mm. a couple of Lancer senior teams and whatever like so. I remember the Lancer senior team. Um 
couple, it was mostly fans to be honest yeah and that kind of disintegrated but that was that was a great show to mm. have as well like there yeah. was fans wearing the Rovers colours in the Lens Senior League the Rovers crest and they, they were absolutely chuffing Steve Barrett one of the guys that yeah. we know very well yeah. he, he was playing for them as well he was he was delighted to be playing for yeah, them you wearing the Rovers colours ah look Woodies were great absolutely great when we hadn't got many good things we had Woodies so uh, 1st of November three local groups Old Bond Community School St. Milleroons AFC St. Milleroons Milleroons AFC and uh, Time and Bond Community Association each registered objections to the stadium project with Onboard Planada and then 19th November Onboard Planada opened the opened the oral hearing into the objections that had been made to the stadium project yeah so we had the 14th of January 1998 it was happy days for everybody at the club as Board Planola approved the plans for the stadium but with 19 restrictions including a reduced capacity of 6,000 and a stipulation that 800 car park spaces would have to be provided as part of the development and the latter condition imposed was to take on a story of its own because further delays in the project off the ground do you remember these delays? yeah was it, was it, a, was it a, a spanner in the works? massive spanner yeah you go ahead Robert or was it go on? no well I mean um, the the whole story about the car park then became a problem because without the car park we couldn't build the stadium you couldn't open the stadium yeah. and then we had objectors and whatever were homing in on the car park thing if they could stop us getting the car park they could stop us getting the stadium yeah so you probably mentioned it later on there uh, carl um joe called us all together one night i think it was in the red cow or yep. the blaze hotel one of the hotels and you just knew by the expression on his face that things were going against us, that um, the objectors had actually put a lot of pressure onto the councillors to stop us from getting the car park, and it was looking like the majority of the councillors were going to go against us. And I never saw Joe as worried as he as he looked that night. And then somebody suggested that we, you know, organise a petition of our own right. around the Tala area, which we did. Tala hoops were brilliant on that. School bus section were brilliant on it. Yep. You know, people, fans who were living in Tala were brilliant on it. And we got, I think, 13,000 signatures. We mobilised, but we also we also mobilised. We got the list of the councillors and the South Dublin County Council, and we gave them all our matches for every one of our fans to contact their local council in their local area. Right. And we walked we walked around the back of the back of the stadium up to the all around Ellsbury and all. And we went door to door, and we petitioned everyone. And m- most people. 90% of them were 100% with us Yeah. but the, the issue was the overflow car park it wasn't the car park that's there yeah. today okay. the overflow car park at that time was when you come out of the ground you go left yeah and there's a farm there there's a little yeah. petting farm past that again yeah. there's a couple of green fields right one of them that's still there today that's a green field that was to be the designated overflow car park and that was the one that they were, what Robert is talking about as a car park and that was the site it wasn't the site within the stadium right. um, that was the stipulation within the planning we had to have that to get over the line I didn't know that but we went to the, the I'll never forget the day it was a Monday afternoon into the council chamber and the vote went with us unanimously it was fantastic well one or two against us but it was we're for it we're for it right around uh, the Sinn Féin councils the Fianna Fáil the independence it was brilliant we knew then we had it 
and then we have a piss up that night <laughs> we, because we worked hard. Yeah, we deserved. worked hard. We and didn't. The, we didn't let up. The ironic thing about it was that um, as things progressed then into two thousand seven and two thousand and eight, like when it all came to an end, we didn't actually need the car park in the end. Yeah, no. it's still greenfield. Well, you see, the, <laughs> I think it's a river run through. It, the hike, the Supreme Court, I think, threw it all back out again, didn't yeah. they? The original objections of it, yeah. so we went back to the original planning permission, which meant that we didn't need the car park. Crazy. Yeah. We move on to the 12th of March and St Melrose AFC and Tom Bond Community Association they both withdrew their objections to the building of the stadium and then we had in April Joe Caldwell became the new SRFC chairman Caldwell a former League of Ireland player himself had been a patron at the club during the Milltown days and established a reputation for himself as a pro- prolific fundraiser an affable individual Caldwell's appointment was met with a groundswell of goodwill from both inside and outside Shamrock Rovers his son Jason a defender had actually signed for us that season as well and Rovers finished fourth and qualified for the Intertoto Cup where they play Alte Sports so can you tell us about that season and Joe becoming it and what was the, the vibe around the club when Joe became the chairman well I'd say just to go back to what Robert was saying Joe was always open and always welcoming to everybody he'd have time for everybody we were all delighted he was the chairman. We were all delighted that he was the man that was going to front it and ho- hopefully get the builders on site. Yeah. So we were all happy that Joe was there. And well, we had a good season. Joe was one of our own. Yeah. And the problem with the new investors were that we didn't really know them. Like, I mean, okay, we got to know Alan McGrath because he was more hands-on and he was the face of the new investors in the club and whatever. But um, you quickly got the impression that uh, these guys didn't really care so much about League of Ireland football and didn't, yeah. really, didn't really know very much about it. I remember the uh, the launch of this whole thing, the takeover. They actually launched it down in Premier Computers. Were you with that? I was, yeah, down in Ringsend, yeah. And talking to a couple of them, it came very clear to me very quickly that uh, they didn't really know what they were getting themselves into. Yeah, they had no idea about the League of Football. No. Like that. no, but then I think the, se- the football was so secondary to them, really. I remember meeting Alan McGrath for the first time and I remember I went into Easton's. And I bought Football Grounds of Britain. Great book by Simon Ingus. And I handed him the book. I said, this is what you're getting involved in. Mm. There's every football ground in Britain, canonically. What the capacity is, what's this. We're going to be in that someday because your money's going to make it happen. Yeah. And he looked at me and said, it was mad. <laughs> this is the forced introduction. But at the end of it all, I think Robert's right. They didn't know. I mean, like Brian, Brian Kearney didn't go to many matches. Marco went to a couple because he played a bit of football. Initially. Alan McGraw went because he was the face of it. And then above them again, which was Jerry O'Reilly, he's just a developer. He had no interest in it. That's right. You know? So then we had the 15th of May with the High Court. They paved the way for all Bond Community School to seek a judicial review into the approval of planning permission by our, our onboard Planola for the stadium project. And then on the 21st of May, a week later, hundreds of fans turned out on the Milltown Road to witness Taoiseach Bertie Heron perform. The official veil, the monument erected to commemorate Glenmore Park as we know. in the helicopter. And then with the summer of 1998, the new chairman, Joe Caldwell, assumed control of Shamrock Growers FC. And then a couple of months later, we did 10th of October with Joe Caldwell once again. He had Jason Sherlock brought to Bally Buffet by helicopter shortly before kickoff on the same afternoon that he played a final at the St. Vincent's GAA grounds. Do you remember this, <laughs> Yeah, I remember being up in Bally Buffet uh, on the day, absolutely. And... Um, I think we ended up drawing that game, Robert. I thought it was a great game. We well, lost both the yeah. games, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did we? Lost the GA game and their game. Okay, yeah, yeah. well, that was it then. But um, I remember I remember the helicopter coming in and we were, we were the one the bills, so you could hear the noise and <laughs> Sherlock driving. But uh, I remember then that, that night we drove back to the spa, having a point room in the spa about three in the morning. 
That's all I remember that day. <laughs> and we'd 2nd November, the application to the High Court for leave of appeal by Old Bond Community School objecting the go-ahead for the stadium was withdrawn. And December, a new supporters club by the name of the Tallahoops were formed. So do you remember much about that? I remember the lads getting together and they bought a flag, the Tallahoops. It was great, yeah, because JC. we needed to have a permanent presence up there, didn't we, Robert, as in the supporters clubs? Yeah, well, uh, it was sort of a natural sort of thing, I suppose. We had so many supporters in Talla anyway, because it was um, a suburb where lots of houses were being built and yeah. a lot of Rovers fans coming from the south side were, were moving out there rather than to places like Blanchardstown, whatever yeah. Talla was really starting to bloom and yeah. Yeah. at that time development-wise. So, yeah, we had the lads were there already, so it was a natural sort of thing. Yeah, and we move on a couple of months now to the 13th of May 1999 and Bertie was back. Him and Joe Caldwell were at the SRFC memorabilia exhibit at Tala Library. Someone told me a random story uh, during the week here. What? He said uh, he knows a, a 28-year-old woman who uh, set up a date on Tinder. And she said the guy contacting her uh, didn't want to show his face because he was a public figure. So she was intrigued. She was like, okay, might be a famous person. So she shows up to the Tinder date, and who's this down? Bertie Ahern. What? Is this serious? Apparently it just happened in the last few weeks. <laughs> we need to check that before we get sued. Well that, well that was in the news actually during the week, and totally and completely denied by a spokesman for Bertie. Bertie's little gingling on Tinder. <laughs> Come on Bertie. <coughs> yeah, so uh, this is May in 1999, and Damien Richardson was appointed as... Successor to Mick Bourne, who was dismissed by the board of SRFC after finishing eighth in the table. Damien was introduced at the SRFC Annual Player of the Year Awards by Chairman Joe Caldwell and stood up to make a speech that lasted 11 minutes, which I'm not surprised at at all, considering his programme notes. So tell us a bit about this, Rob. Can you remember when he was appointed and when Mick was sacked and what you think led to that decision for Mick to get the boot? Um, no, I'm not going to go into why Mick got the boot, to be honest with you. I think um, it was just a disappointing season. Maybe uh, Joe maybe just wanted to bring in, you know, somebody Freshen new, up, maybe. experience and whatever. I do remember that night in the Red Cow though, when Joe when uh, Joe introduced Damien as the new manager, mm. and it was me actually that put the timer on my watch because I said to <laughs> myself I was actually responsible for keeping everything flowing, and I just said to everybody that was around me, said, "Okay, this is going to throw our schedule out because he's not going to shut up." <laughs> so I set my watch, and eleven minutes later, it was when he stopped. So <laughs> I remember that one well. Yeah, it goes um, ramblings. Yeah. And what was the the vibe like when he was appointed? Was right. it was it a, a good ah, appointment? Yeah, it was, it was a positive. good appointment. Yeah, yeah, it was a good appointment. And former player with us, and he yeah, knows a history with Rovers as well. Yeah. yeah. So we're in July. And uh, perhaps inspired by the FAI Super Cup game played at Martin Stadium the previous season, the board of SRFC came to an agreement with the Fingal County Council to rent Santry Athletics venue for two years as a stopgap measure in the expectation that the new stadium in Tallaght would be complete by then. Now, I wasn't around to see that, but I was around to see Fingal. And Fingal. It's a soulless a, kip. Oh, it's a Fingal, yes. Fingal. Fingal, yeah. It's a soulless kip. Cracking tree tree dry out there. You remember, lads, from... Uh, I think it was 2009 our fourth season with Sporting Fingal yeah. Stephen Rice got a, a great goal that day but it was it was torrential rain I can't really imagine having that as your home ground so it was tough that was tough we used to have to go out early on a Sunday morning and put the ads around the ground then after the match we'd have to drag them all back in and put them away 
but the ground was it was it was open and it was windy and the flight path to Dublin Airport over you it was just horrendous. But we stuck with it. We know what no no options had we, Robert. No, we hadn't, and you know uh, it was a brave We're decision. With it, that was it. Brave decision by Joe to try and take us away from the Tolka Parks, the Daily Mount Parks, and whatever. But at that time, Joe would have genuinely believed that after two years that we would have been yeah. into Tallis Stadium. Yeah. So uh, there wasn't a great reaction from the fans, which is why I think that Joe decided not to continue the the arrangement. In the place, it was it was okay, like in so far the for the crowds we were getting, everybody could get a seat if you like, or you know get on the cover. Um, there was a decent room there for the club to put on some sort of um, hospitality for sponsors yeah. and that type of thing uh, but people generally weren't going to you were too far away from the pitch yeah. Yeah. I remember Tommy Dunn stepping back to take a corner kick and he fell over the advertising order <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well yeah it wasn't actually you know I had car parking and that type of thing but you know I remember I used to do the interviews with players for the programme like after the matches and you'd be sitting in the hall where the end, the exit from the dressing room would come out into, and the guys working for the council, Fingal Council, just switch off the lights. You'd be left sitting in the pitch dark. You know what I mean? That's like, their shift on, they're gone. That was yeah. it, but they were telling you to get out, basically. You know, so not having your own home, not being able to do things like this. You know, Carl, now you will wait there on Friday nights and you'll wait for the players, whatever. Nobody's hurting you out or anything like that, you know? Mm. Because that's but you council workers turn the lights off and saying, right, this, get this, out, don't care, yeah. this is what would happen. And then you'd be worried that you might, your car might get locked in in the car park and stuff like that, and you'd you know? Have to, you couldn't get it out. Yeah, amazing stuff. So we had 14th of July, we had another farcical event, the Hoops Nomadic Existence Accord. When having agreed to play St. Johnson in a pre-season friendly, Shamrock Rovers could not secure a venue in which to stage the game. Newbridge Town AFC readily agreed they'll put their venue at the disposal of the hoops and the game staged there so do you remember this that's very embarrassing I do. I, I do remember it and I remember going out and pre- prepping a bit of advertising on the day but I also remember Noel Hunt making his debut for us that day no, was Shane Robinson was it Shane, Shane Robinson was, yeah. it, was it Shane Robinson yeah. it was Robbo and we knew he was a decent player plenty of pace yes, his pace was lightning super yeah. uh, that, that's the one thing I remember for that day yeah. Keto Halloran actually who was uh, with our under 19s team now Stephen Rice's assistant um, he captained the St. Johnson team that day. Really? That day? Yeah. She's a full circle. <laughs> yeah. And then we move up a couple of months to October. Negotiations on the lease of the land needed to provide a car park as part of the onboard planola. Conditions were prolonged as the councillors were influenced by some objectors and a real fear arose that opponents could thwart the project by putting pressure on the councillors. Rovers were forced to mobilise every supporter living in Tallaght as well as the schoolboy section of the club to visit every home in the area and bid to seek the signatures for the petition in support of obtaining the lease. The critical meeting of STCC was due to take place on Monday 8th November. 13,000 signatures were collected as you said whack and it's literally like you just spoke it off our script and uh, you, like you said you mobilised the troops and you went out and you got the signatures. We knocked on doors, we, we, we shook hands and we got Helped the result we wanted. We, we absolutely, whatever it takes. But we got the result we wanted. It was in the winter time too, I think. Um, so it wasn't, uh, you know, that easy going around houses yeah. at night time and whatever. And myself and Richard McGarry, we did the whole of Glenview Estate. I think there's about 350 houses in it. And um, we got a good reception from most of the houses. Some people didn't want to know, others didn't open the doors, whatever. You can understand people open the doors at night time. I remember one house that I went to and this man opened the door and I explained why I was looking for, you know, his support for this uh, signed a petition, whatever, and he said no to me. And 
I asked him, do you mind me asking you why? And then he said to me, because Shamrock Rovers supporters would be in trouble to tell it, basically. So having talked to him and convinced him about, you know, loud supporters, never involved in any trouble. Such a bullshit generalisation, isn't it? Everything else yeah. like this. But he, this man might have been typical, or he might have been influenced by objectors, which were some of the stories that were peddled at the time. Shamrock Rovers going to tell it, you know, they're going to bring trouble up to the area and whatever, like... Um, so I then heard the signature tune for the Champions League playing in the background in his living room and I said to him do you mind me asking he said are you watching the Champions League remember Chelsea were playing that night and he says well I am I'm going to watch the match now in a few minutes so I said well do you not think that now it would be great if you had an Irish club playing just up from the back of you here now playing in their own stadium playing in the Champions League there and he sort of stopped and he hymned and hawed and whatever. So after a bit more conversation, whatever, he signed the petition. Yeah, he's throwing them over. When I walked down his driveway, that man, night, I thought to myself, I'm really chuffed with this one. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. brilliant. You converted a bar. That's what he had to do. He had to convince people as well. Yeah. He was representing the club. To find him for LOI Curious segment. Yeah, that'd be good one. So after the 13,000 signatures, uh, November was the Tala Stadium presentation called Into the New Millennium with the Hoops. There was another brochure in the summer of 2000 showing phase one and two and all the facilities that would be built. And then the 8th of November, the crucial vote was taken by the SDCC councillors and was in 22 to 4 in favour of the deal as agreed with the council. In keeping with the stipulations laid down on board Planola, the way had now been cleared for the additional car parking spaces to be added to the project as the council agreed to allocate a further plot of land further along the Whitestown Way for this purpose. So uh, things were starting to look up. Yeah, I know they did. So moving into December, and Rovers and the South Dublin County Council legal representatives met to draft a lease. Rovers informed the council that they intend to begin erecting an outer fence around the site within weeks. The one you talked about, Wack. That was the brothers. Yeah. The 23,000 check. And a new board of directors comprising of Jack Wilson, John Brain, Tony Maguire, Mick Cairns, and later Paul Boyle and Alan Duncan were put into place by Joe Caldwell. So uh, the board of directors, were you, was that proud day for you? Coming on the board of directors. Yeah, it wasn't something that I ever seek to be fair to be honest with you, but it was a proud day because at this stage you've done everything else for the club, do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, you know, um but it wasn't something that I just always wanted to be a director of the club. No, I just wanted I wanted an end to the homelessness. I wanted an end to Rovers being, you know, ridiculed all, all over the you know, you're homeless, this and that and I just wanted us to be successful and if I could help, that was that was the goal. Yeah. And then mid-February 2000, Joe Caldwell confirmed that the council had instructed their legal representatives to proceed with issuing the lease. He also confirmed that 2.2 million Irish punts was in place for the commencement of phase one and the grant application for further financial assistance had been submitted both to the government and to the FAI. So we're starting to pick up steam now. Yeah. On the 30th of March, Taoiseach Bertie Harm performed the official sod turning ceremony so Bertie is back for the stadium project and school children from Old Bond Community School were, were used to stage a noisy protest outside the, st- the site as the hand arrived. I did not know that. I was looking at pictures of that. They yeah. got kids to do that dirty work. Yeah, there was, and it was one a kid w- holding a sign saying, who conned their kids? <laughs> Ask the SDCC. Yeah. And I remember um, we, had the, we, we, we knew they were going to come out the gate of the, uh, of the school as Bertie arrived but the police were there they were tipped off and they just kept it to a low key but Bertie listened to him for a few minutes had a say and then they, they ushered him back into the school remember well he didn't get a lot of, lot of airplay it was disgusting I thought that um, they used school children 
was. I completely agree with you, Rob. And I don't think half the kids were even convinced that they believed in what they were protesting. Those kids against. had no idea. Because kids know. were saying to us, we really want Rovers to be here. Mm. Yeah. Yet they were taken out of school with their placards and they were shouting and everything else. But the guards kept them well back. Well, I was lucky. I was lucky was with the guards because my brother-in-law is the superintendent at the time in Tala. And we had him queued up to not give him much time. Mm. And John certainly looked after us that day. Mm. And we got him back into his fence and closed There was a little bit of controversy following that because when Joe was leaving the site, he <laughs> left in the same car <laughs> as Bertie Ahern. Mr. Ahern. <laughs> he was caught by a photographer sticking his tongue out. At he was at, not. At he the, was, yeah. At the school principal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, stop. Then we went back to the plaza hotel. find that photograph, actually. The great old, great old evening. I remember that, going back to the plaza, yeah. Little picker found the... Uh, Good old big dick rocking the shades there, with Jim Conroy. <laughs> These were going old school now. That's in Tala. That's when they turned the sod. Turned Jimmy, the sod there, yeah. big dick. Jimmy Conroy with the guns and roses yeah. mullet. <laughs> yeah, remember it well. And Jimmy Senior, great, great day. Birdie drinking the champagne as well. Picture of that. Yeah. So the twenty second of May, the bulldozers have arrived. At 6.30am on a bright and sunny afternoon, heavy machinery moved onto the stadium site as Barnmore Developments began to prepare the land for the laying of the pitch by Ian McMullen's company, Sports Ground Maintenance Limited. So, I'm guessing you had something to do with these, Wack? I'll never forget it. I woke up at 5 in the morning. I was to meet Barnwell there with Woodlow Engineering, Brendan's, Brendan's business. We arrived up. We had, to, we had our position picked. And Brendan's lads took out the skill sauce, cut the fence cut the fence and duly in time the lads come down with their with their heavy machinery low loaders dropped the low loaders reversed them in and it was the first time the work had started on the stadium lads I'm telling you it was magic <laughs> there was I'll tell you who was there myself and Brendan and Rob Tormley and his daughter little baby in his arms I have a picture of it this was the start of the development and with the lads from Woodlow and the way we went it was brilliant Robert well, let's just say um, that was six Mick, in the morning by the way that we shouldn't forget you know people who supported us along the way oh no no I mean we've talked about um, Charlie O'Connor and whatever but there was one other councillor there from um, he lived in Lincoln and Green and Walkinstown uh, Eamon Walsh I mean that man has been forgotten for the support that he gave us I remember meeting him outside Ulster Bank and Walkinstown one morning and um, thanking him shaking his hands and whatever and he said to me, I will definitely be supporting this 100% all yeah. the way through. And he did, and he spoke up for us. And Robert, you're 100% right. He was absolutely brilliant. He'd done everything you said. He he pushed for us as well as Charlie. He was on our side every step of the way. A great man. Amen. Great man. So we'll move on to the 25th of July now. Shamrock Rovers were allocated half a million from the latest batch of grants from the Sports Capital Programme towards the construction of the stadium. Previously, the, SC, the SCP had awarded the hoops the sum of £150,000 towards the project. The cost of completing Phase 1 of the stadium was revealed to be now standing at £4.2 million as inflation in the building industry was running at a rate of 1% per month during the peak of the economic boom in the country and uh, it's quite, it was quite an increase, wasn't it? It was, was, and uh, look, at, I mean, we, we Joe had the grants, but after that we didn't have we didn't have the money to finish it, which is a disaster. So at the time there was, the shell that was left, how much did that cost to build? I'd say 
all the grants, which is roughly, I think, about 1.2 million. I was not much there, was there? It was, no. just, it was, it was literally no. just a terrace. Yeah, yeah. And we thought we were going to get more grants as it pushed on. He'd one or two people, he's hoping to get invested in with him. And it just didn't materialise, Robert, did it? No, and then there was so many stories about people getting involved, like Ben Dunn, uh, Brendan O'Carroll, the comedian. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, I was... I was never ending. I was... I was um, I was appointed electrical contractor to a tender process uh, to PJ McLaughlin, who were the builders right. for phase one um, from Longford. And I remember starting the job in about September and coming towards Christmas, McLaughlin said to me, look, we don't think this money's flowing, so we'll probably be only pulling off site. And he gave me a heads up and I was sick. And my ringing Joe, he said, listen, they'll only be off for a while. We, we, we do have money problems, but it'll, it'll materialise over and uh, as we know, it didn't. No, and I remember you telling me when uh, McLaughlin pulled off the site, and my God, I tell you, we were all shocked, really. It was something that you didn't expect at all. Didn't, you didn't no. expect, and it was a bad sign when Both it happened. Both out of blue. But as supporters, it was a very hard time for us because you kind of got fed up with people constantly asking you about uh, what's happening with the stadium up there. Like, even like my own mother and father and like neighbours and everybody, people in work. And Anyone like, knew you. Fed you blew in the face telling them people stopping no in the street. Yeah, and you were trying to be positive with people, but you got to the stage that if you saw somebody coming towards you on one side of the street, on the same side of the street as you, you were crossing over. <laughs> <laughs> the the yeah. yeah, and as, as I was on the board, I remember telling me, saying, listen, you're in the construction industry. We let you liaise with the builder and all this to make sure that it's going smooth and let us know what's happening. But um, you'd be well to know. You'd know if they were trying to pull any scams. Yeah, and and, and the fairness to McLaughlin's, they were they were decent. They were they were banging along with it, but they just needed the cash flow to continue yeah. the job. You know. But going back in, what Robert's saying there about investors, when they pulled off site, we were then scouring around trying to get people to help us. And I done the development with a guy called Graham Quinn, who uh, was a business associate with Brent Dunn. Mm. So I met Ben Dunn up on the site with Tony McGuire. And Ben, as we know previously from a few years earlier, was involved in some situation in Florida. I certainly was. Right. And I remember walking down the stand <laughs> and he came down the stand and he'd done a deal. says, lads, I'm going to build a health club there. What you thinking? I said, that's fantastic. And I'll finish the stadium for you. Right. But as he walked down the end of the stand, he says, lads, I haven't been that high since Florida. <laughs> <laughs> we broke our heads laughing. Happy that's it. And he said, he said, uh, he said look, <clears throat> we, need, we need something to, to appease the fans. We're, 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 we need to get this going. He said, go over and I'll, get a, I'll draft a letter from Brandsland Limited my company to see where we're going to do this. Mm. So we got the letter and we published it in the programme and it was all good stuff. But again, it turned out because the leases were set up. Mulden International was the head of lease. Sloan Park was the, was the lease underneath it. Mm. Because Sloan Park lease didn't have the car park in the ground, he couldn't develop a health club without a car park. Right. So that's where the Ben Down thing fell. Yeah. Then I also bought in Connor Clarkson. Connor paid the wages a good few weeks and gave the club a lot a lot of money he was a mystery figure for a while he wasn't named yeah but he was genuine uh, Keith I have to say uh, Carl, he was 100% um, his intentions were, were genuine and he wanted it to do as well but he was trying to sort out the problems with the the Mulden lease and the Sloan Park lease and Jerry O'Reilly Jeremiah O'Reilly he had the header lease and we said and Tony McGuire were going to meetings with him regular trying to get it solved and we just kept getting brick walls we just yeah. couldn't get there on it 
we have these people that will develop it if you give us back that lease he was still trying to get another angle elsewhere on the site commercially mm. we just kept hitting brick walls and uh, Connor, Connor Clarkson was, was really good to the club I have to say that to you lads and people wouldn't have known Connor put a lot of money into it and then I bought in New O'Regan who had all the, the, the pubs and, the, and the, 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 the Dublin sports place New oh, yeah. O'Regan gave this football club 50,000 one day wrote a cheque for 50,000 people don't know that his brother Jack who was a good friend of mine passed away but he wanted to do something in Jack's memory and he, he put a few things in place he also gave me a letter to say we'll take the bars if you can get money borrow money and the strength of that so we had people trying to yeah, help yeah, us all yeah, around yeah, yeah. but we, few just, and few we just couldn't get we couldn't get what we needed yeah. you know and that was the tragedy Robert well while all that was going on Mick um, the club was actually getting deeper and deeper into financial yeah. difficulties yeah. and we all know where that led to in uh, the summer of 2005 the club just couldn't go on any, any further yeah. and the debts were 3.3 million wasn't it? Yeah well um, at that stage I went on the board in 2003 and January 2005 I just had enough I couldn't do anymore I just just didn't see, listen as I'm out I can't do anymore because my own business was struggling mm. and I put so much on, uh, on the line for, for my own business and my personal stuff but I just said, look, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I just can't track it anymore, because I used to get up in the mornings and go and go and meet people nine to five. Because mm. these people wouldn't be meeting you at Six seven at night. Yeah, yeah. I have kept the diary of the hours that went into it, which is colossal. I'd say half the year I spent looking after overs. Yeah. But uh, I jumped ship then, and I remember the lads said, "You don't go." I said, "Look, I can't do any more." And then, because we were spoiling our control, Robert. Was I remember you rang me? You resigned on the Monday, mm. and you rang me about six o'clock. I was in Dorset Street at the time, and uh, saw my phone. Mick Cairns got what's wrong? I knew something was wrong. Yeah, you would have to ring me to tell me that you had resigned from the board. Mm. I, was, I don't think I was shocked. I think I kind of half expected it to be honest with yeah. you. Just you were never so shocked with anything that was happening at Rovers at that time. Yeah, you were just wondering what was going to happen next. You know? Yeah, the fourteenth of August now. So we're in the year 2000, so with Martin Stadium unavailable due to uh, an athletics event, Robert staged their first league game of the season against Bowles at Talca Park. The game was played on a Monday evening and a healthy crowd of 3,500 witnesses an entertaining scoreless draw. That Robert's were struggling to get such a crowd of Sandry was a point not lost on many Hughes fans who were dreading the prospects of their season playing home games at the venue. 11 days later, a home game against Longford Town had to be staged at Richmond Park, and that drew a big crowd of 5,000, whereas the first game back at Sanctuary in October had attendance of only 1,500. So that's, that's a massive difference, isn't it? Yeah, it shows, you, it shows you that the fans just had enough of, of Sanctuary, you know. Well, we were also playing there on Sunday afternoons, and that goes back to what I was saying about the RDS, which was a considerable period before that. Yeah. I mean... Even if you go back to Milltown, to be really honest with you, Sunday football was dead. Once they started showing live games from England, I think UTV started showing them, or ITV started showing them, and there was a massive difference in the attendances. Mm. Like I think our attendances were cut in half, almost. Yeah, yeah. That uh, you couldn't compete with this. So that would have been one of the other big problems with the Morton Stadium, was that it hadn't got floodlights really. It had floodlights, but not sufficient for football. No. And... Um, that was just one of the other problems, I think, with the venue. So September was uh, the seeding ceremony at the stadium site with uh, Rico and Ray Coleman from Woody's DIY overseeing that one. Uh, 
So Joe Caldwell had instructed the council to hand the lease for 12.18 acres of the 13 acre site over to a company called Molden International Limited. We covered this a bit. And they were funded by two of the wealthiest men in Ireland, Bernard McNamara and Jeremiah O'Reilly. Molden was to complete the stadium on Robert's behalf. But then, on the 20th of October, it was reported that Molden International transferred eight acres of the proposed stadium site to a company called Sloan Park, with the latter taking responsibility to build the stadium. Sloan Park was a company in which Shamrock Rovers owned 60% shares, 25% was owned by developer Jerry O'Reilly, and 50% owned by Brian Kearney. So Molden had, in effect, transferred ownership of the stadium to Sloan Park, but they held on to four acres, and it was these four acres that was to cause so many heartaches for all involved over the following four years. Yeah. And that sounds that sounds extremely dodgy from somebody who wasn't around at that time. It was tough because it gave us nowhere to go to negotiate any sort of investment into the development of the stadium. And we were left because Jerry O'Reilly and Bernard McNamara could have developed that in the, in the flick of a pen. But they had no interest in the football club and uh, they left us with a pup and we had nowhere to go with it. They had different Park. priorities as well because as developers they wouldn't have been in such a hurry where we were in a hurry to get that stadium. Do you reckon ultimately they were looking at it as a, a long-term project as, let's say, I don't know... That's what build. developers do. Yeah, yeah. they were looking yeah. at it and saying, well, 10 years down the line we could put apartments there. They, they could sit in a piece of land, it didn't yeah. matter. It didn't matter. Yeah. It matter to them, you know what I mean? We were a football club. Um, on a life support machine yeah. since 1987 you know we need to end of this you know uh, so 6th of May 2001 with the negative views among the fan base to the club playing at Morton Stadium having spread considerably it appeared that the last league game of the season when Derry City travelled to Sandry might very well be the final game there just 417 <sighs> fans attended the fixture and there's a good quote here from Samantha Liberi. Uh she says my abiding memory from that time it was just a feeling that nothing was going for us. As every twist and turn emerged, I really did think the club was going to go out of business. Martin Stadium was so bleak. I remember looking around the match and Shane Robinson's family were behind me and there was a few other people and that was it. I just thought, this isn't Rovers. Every season you were seeing people disappear. It just seemed like it was going to end up with five of us going to matches. There was really very little enjoyment in it back, day, uh, back in those days. Very little to keep you going. So was it as bleak as she described? Well, it was bleak. But, you know, full credit to the fans who kept going. I'm not saying anything against people who didn't keep going because it was a real test of character yeah, of people. And if the truth be known, I probably talk to myself at times, I'm not going to bother going for this anymore. Like, why should I get myself beaten up like this all the time? But you had to stick with it. So long as the stadium project was alive, if the stadium project had died completely, I suppose it would have been to plan B then. Yeah. What would we do next to try and save Shamrock Rovers? But, you know, certainly we're never going to walk out on Joe Caldwell because my father now wasn't a Rovers fan, wouldn't have been familiar with the politics and all that type of thing, but he used to always say to me, Joe Caldwell needs support. And, you know, keep in there and yeah. keep supporting me. He depends on people like yourself and he depends on fans. And my father spoke very wisely about that. I'll always remember that. Yeah. Oh, no, listen, I mean, it was bleak. No, no doubt about it. And we were all feeling it every time we went out there. But, but you had something to cling on to, didn't you? We, we had that ray of hope. We had the ray of hope. And we had, we, had, we had a future. We just needed to jump onto it and um, 
get over the hurdles, the political hurdles and the financial hurdles, but like we stuck together. That's the bottom line. We did stick together. We had some great meetings about you know getting getting over them hurdles in 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 council and all them type of meetings we went through and what we did door to door. People mightn't believe it now, Mick, but you remember that we used to put on the fantastic Player of the Year awards in the Red Cow. Brilliant black tie, wasn't every it? Year. No, it wasn't black tie. That was a different one that the board did when when they came when we got into Tala. Then they did that for two or three years. Uh, we used to actually have, you know, we'd have two brilliant people nights. or whatever. Like we don't do it like that now. Like it'd be a sit-down meal and ah, brilliant and nights. So what's the next step to get that done? Maybe we should start another, yeah, another well, social committee. I think maybe. a social committee through the club would be, would be the way to go. Because they were great nights. I mean, we had some fantastic nights there, and, and the play of the year was a real sense of an occasion. Mm. You know what I mean? It really was, wasn't it? It was, and we managed to always keep it secret, like, you know, who had actually won it, so there was that anticipation oh, right yeah. at the moment that it was. And announced. it was super. I mean, great venues and great, and the wives and girlfriends of all the lads, you, you don't see him all season because he's going to the match as well. This is what he's doing. Yeah. And he's loving it. Players are bringing their wives and their fantastic. partners. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to offer you a couple of positives, though, from that era. One, you used to always beat Bowes in the late 90s, mm. early 90s. And two, at least we had Rico's program articles, his yeah. manager notes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely madman. And Richie described football as a cosmic ballet of wondrous beauty. <laughs> it was incredible stuff he used to write. <laughs> well, you know, um, it used to be a bit of a nightmare for me trying to get Rico's program notes. As you will know, Carl, from uh, deadlines and whenever, and I'm always screaming about the deadlines, where's my piece and all that type of thing. Um, Rico would wait till the very last minute and sometimes beyond the very last minute. He comes minute. out with that stuff in the last minute. Imagine he had time. Imagine what he came out with then. Well, he was a literary genius in a sense, but the programme was printed by the Kilkenny people at that time. And Rico would send his stuff down to them on Wednesday morning or Thursday morning evening. He was pushing it out as far as he could. If he could have pushed it out at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon, he would have. <laughs> But I used to keep saying to him, don't take it, like, you know, teach him a lesson, like, you know. But they used to say, oh, they, they worshipped Damien Richardson. Even though it was steep GAA country, they thought Damien Richardson was a big uh, VIP. Yeah. If he's listening here, you are, of course, the VIP, Damien. <laughs> but uh, when he was supposed to do guests in the Glen Malore suite there, I think, last year, the year before, and he didn't turn up because, in the meantime, he was asked to commentate for RTE. And we did a lot of stuff in the programme about him, and I wrote an article mm. about Rico's notes and whatever, but I was basically kind of taking the piss. Mm. And I was thinking to myself, when he reads this now, he's going to have a go at me, because, like, Damien always took things very, very seriously. But about um, only a couple of months ago there, coming towards the end of the season, was the first time I'd actually seen him at Montalas Stadium, and he came over to me and he shook hands with me, and he said, that was a great article. That <laughs> <laughs> so he remembers me. Damien, Damien was a nice man, lovely man. I think he admitted that they were kind of tongue-in-cheek, though, wasn't he? Ah, oh, yeah. yeah. He also said we were all plebs and we didn't understand them. <laughs> <laughs> he bamboozled us. So as the 2000-2001 season came to an end, with Rovers finishing 7th in the league, everything seemed to be on course for the opening of the stadium for the following season. Joe Caldwell told fans that there would be a slight delay for the opening, perhaps September, on account of bad weather, delaying the laying of the pitch. So then we got to May... And uh, the stadium was now a work in progress. We constructed the bonds of the West End. But meanwhile, it became apparent that McNamara and O'Reilly were looking to construct alternate developments on their four acres. Planning permission for a hotel was refused, 
and the pair quickly lost interest. Wow, in the real intentions come out. Yep, that always does, doesn't it? 28th of July, Minister Jim McDade announced grant aid for League of Ireland clubs. Shamrock Rovers were allocated a further £500,000, still pounds decision, towards the construction of the stadium. August, construction was almost complete of the main stand, not including the dressing room, offices and so on, and the pitch had received its first cutting. The roofers were reported as being ready to move on shortly. Move in shortly. Are you involved here, Mick? I was involved, yeah. Um, they, they never arrived. The, the roof was a problem because the way it was designed at the time by uh, the architect Martin Noon, the company that could only really do it was a company from Austria. And it was very expensive roof because it's curved panels. So The way it is now? Yeah. And uh, it was a pity it just wasn't a straight uh, corrugated finish roof. Kingspan roof, but it was a it was a, it was a specialist roof, and they they came in from Austria to do it when it eventually did happen. But it cost a slight fortune. I think it was nearly half a million just for the roof. Jeez. So that was a pity because it was it was less detail. It would have been probably done at that stage, but that was when the money was kind of running out on the development, and and the money wasn't there to do it or engage them over. And if they hadn't been so extravagant in the original plans. And had gone for the Kingspan type roof, um, they probably would have been able to cover the whole of the stand, not just half of it. Yeah. Which is a terrible, but even today, I mean, out the front, you, you get wet, you know. Mm-hmm. But look, there you go. Uh, the 10th of August. At the AGM of SRFC, Miss Anne Soy was appointed to the board. The club's tenure at Martin Stadium had come to an end, and Robbers were once again back at Tolka Park, and they'd find themselves hopping between Tolka and Richmond Park during the season to play their home games. Uh, September, construction of the stadium was halted as a a result of a dispute between bricklayers and the builder, PJ McLaughlin. What was the dispute? It was was about um, employing um, um, non-unionised bricklayers, which was a disaster. Jesus. I was on the site that day, we were walking away, and McLaughlin's got a phone call to say, bricklayers are leaving sites all over Dublin to, to, to go on and pick at the site. And there was bricklayers in from Northern Ireland who probably weren't unionised. would you say? Whatever, yeah. But they came in the site, the fellas came over the walls everywhere and started intimidating the bricklayers, which wasn't pretty. And then they then they put a picket on the gate, which was another disaster because no cement deliveries, no nothing. Nothing going in around? So everyone had to just pull off site. Because it was such a high-profile site, they thought they'd garnish media attention for their cause. Yeah. But McLaughlin's then eventually went and got a high court um, order against it and cleared it, cleared away and then walked did restart. But it stopped it for about a month or six weeks and it was a mess, mess. Guard of helicopters and all on the day over the site and squad cars everywhere dragging fellas off the site. I mean, we've been through a lot. Yeah, this is stuff that, like I said, I'm, I'm learning this today. The block layers no the they hid in a, in a, in a, in a, in a container. I locked the door on them says you get in there and hit because it would have been digs and everything the northern yeah block, yeah so. yeah so at this stage we had a full stand a partially well, partially completed stand minus the seats and but the players were training on the pitch mm. and the first ever squad photograph was taken at the stadium and needless to say Tony O'Dowd was looking away from the camera <laughs> Front of your book as well Robert the 100 years that's right I think, it's a, I think this picture away. is in wax layer 
in 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 Tata Stadium as well. Have you got that photo? I think so. Yeah, we do in the switch room. <laughs> but remember that that day the pitch was taken, and the lads used to love coming up and trying on the pitch because it was they felt it was home. It was, it was great. The pitch yeah. was in great nick. Oh, though, was, the it? pitch was super, and they were playing. They were training, which was just because at some stage what the Rovers were training in parks. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Who, who was going? Hockey Park and. Yeah, Daryl Towns. Towns. They yeah. had to wait for the park uh, ranger to, to go. They'd be getting a phone call saying the ranger's there. We can't train there. Yeah, they had to go and switch somewhere else. So they went in there. They were left alone. They were safe. You know. And one of those. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a small comfort to be left alone to train. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. But the reality of it was, Mick, that they probably shouldn't have been in there because it was a building site, and I don't think they were insured. <laughs> no, but look at that stage. Who cares? I mean, they just wanted it. They wanted to feel a sense, and the manager wanted them to have a sense of belonging. And they achieved that by doing it, you know. But listen, the way Helen said it's got now, she wouldn't do it. No, you wouldn't get that. It's ridiculous. Uh, the 26th of September. Rovers' record against Shelburne in recent years had been pretty dire, but when they beat the Reds 3 0 in a game that has controversial moments, they didn't realise the trouble they would be getting themselves into. Shelburne Chief Executive Ollie Byrne took exception to the manner of the Hoops win <laughs> and terminated the agreement what? he had with Joe Caldwell which permitted Shamrock Rovers to play their home games at Talca Park. That's quite petty now, isn't it? That was Ollie. Was that? An was that with, so that was the reason, that was the reason, the loss? Yeah, Ollie, <laughs> Ollie was a lunatic. Now, by the way, a great football man and a, loved his football club to death and probably died because of him, but he, he, uh, he was some man, wasn't he? I remember him after that goal and he was down the front of the stand and some of his... Head honcho was there and Shelburne were trying to hold him back. He was going absolutely ballistic. Really? He was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Sure, he got, got involved in a row then later on with Roddy Collins. Roddy, him and Roddy Collins. Yeah, just just Diggins, yeah. Roddy was managing the rowers, yeah. And Roddy's shirt got ripped. But he was a big Roddy's character. Lou, Louis Copeland shirt. <laughs> and he was, a, he was a good man, but he was a looper. In a right way, you know. The 30th of November, Joe Caldwell confirmed that further £1.5 million was still required in order to get Roberts playing at Tala. The dispute between the bricklayers continued. Caldwell was in discussions with the Sports, County, Sports Council regarding a grant of £1 million and hoped to raise the remainder from private investors. And in December, Caldwell stated that the funding from the private investors had been secured. It was unlikely that Hoops would be in a position to move into Tala until the beginning of the 2002-03 season, he said. So now we're into January 2002. Uh, the Sparse Council's announcement that the grant of £1 million had been approved that was met with a great sense of joy by Hoops fans who couldn't wait for the day their team would play in Tadda. No work had been carried out at the site since autumn. Uh, the 8th of March, Joe Caldwell announced after the game against Dundalk that he was resigning as chairman of Shamrock Rovers. He stated that the past four years had taken a huge toll on him personally and that he could no longer continue to fund the club from his own resources. The grant from the Sparse Council had still not come true. Was this a sad day when Joe Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. And it was a sad day because you knew that Joe probably knew more than he was saying to us, but at the end of it all, it was the funding wasn't there. But he didn't actually go. He stayed on for a while. Um, yeah. That was that night of that disastrous semi-final against the dock of Oriel Park. I remember walking down the corridor past the dressing rooms after the match and... This door from my room opened out and as I was walking by I just looked in and Joe was standing there with a couple of people. I presumed that they had been in there counting the gate receipts or whatever. And Joe 
his trademark was his big long coat and he was standing there with his hands in his pockets and he saw me and he just came straight out the door. It was as though he just wanted to see somebody familiar. He just wanted out of that room as fast as he could possibly get. Mm. And he just called me and he said to me, um, I've decided to call it a day, whatever. I remember leaving the ground afterwards and there was some of the Tala Hoops lads were there. Uh, Paddy Daly, uh, Tony Burney, whatever. And I remember telling them and they were in absolute shock of what they had just heard. <coughs> it was a day that, yeah. and the sort of news that we just, nobody wanted to hear. No. It was one of those things where you knew you had a good guy involved and he but just he, walked he, away. He'd done as much as he could. Yeah. He could um, imagine the stress and strain on him when he was trying to get that ground built. and it, like Eventually, the teams just take their toll. Oh, yeah, well, the effort and time and Absolutely. the strain on the family life. Yeah, the whole yeah. That defeat yeah. in Dundalk seems to be a significant oh, day horrendous. on and off the field because Rico's tenure, a lot of people tend to point back to that game. We were 3-0 down at half time. It was horrendous. Dundalk were relegated that season and they win the cup. Yeah. And then Cabo decides to step down as well. So on and off the field, a major event. Yeah, but it was worrying. It was, um, I think it was like keeping in trend with what we were all thinking at the time we were worrying that if the stadium wasn't developed and if it wasn't got open like what was going to happen to the club mm. at least if you had somebody like Joe at the helm but then you kind of knew that you know Joe was only human and he wasn't going to be able to keep this going if these you know delays kept coming like you think Brexit is you know confusing with all its twists and turns but tell you this it's a rollercoaster ride it really oh, is. is this was unbelievable film should be made about yeah. this yeah yeah, uh, we finished runners-up in the league because St. Pat's were deducted 15 points and the Hoops qualified for the UEFA Cup playing Jor Gardens but there was a shock final defeat to Dundalk in the Cup semi-final which we just spoke about and the 25th of April former Hoops player Liam Buckley began his third period at the club this time as a gaffer Tony Cousins now retired as a player also returned to Rovers in the capacity as reserve team under 21's manager mm. and then we had Alan Duncan joining the board of directors of SRFC so what was his story? Alan Duncan, do you know much about him? Yeah, Alan was involved in St. Francis and um, I think Joe ended up talking to him. Or, uh, Joe was at the helm then, wasn't he? Yeah. Still there, yeah. yeah and Joe, um, I think Alan had a few quid and he said, look, I'd love to join the board and put a few quid in. So that's how it came about and he's, he's with the club a couple of years after that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the 7th of July, Joe Colwell in his programme notes for the friendly against Celtic said that the delay was in the opening of the stadium was caused partly by the difficulty in obtaining the materials for the construction of the roof as you were talking about work. He said that both materials and a contractor had been sorted out and he asked fans to be a little bit more patient. And then the 7th of August, Joe Colwell announced his resignation as chairman with effect from 1st of October. He told a packed meeting at the Plaza Hotel that he would continue on the board and his special brief would be to oversee the completion of the work necessary to get Rovers into Tala. Club director Tony O'Guire, chairman of SRFC Schoolboys and Tala Town AFC was elected by the board to succeed Colwell. So, so how happy were people with Maguire uh, being elected? There were no issues at the time. There wasn't no. exactly a rush of candidates looking to take over the job. There wasn't. Well, I mean, you know, you have to see a guy called Joe Cobb going out the doors after putting his life on the line and then who's going to run around and say, I'll do it next. Yeah. You know, um, Tony came in and he, he he was a good chairman as far as I'm concerned. He's done his best, Robert, yeah. Yeah, well, I knew Tony from my dealings with him. I was on the schoolboys committee, so... Um, mm. I'll probably get lynched now when I say this but it was actually me that put the idea into Tony's head <laughs> uh, we were actually driving down to Waterford for an under 17 uh, FAI Cup quarterfinal game 
against Waterford Bowes and Tony gave me a lift back. I went down to team but Tony gave me a lift back in his car and while going home I actually put the idea into his head I said to him do you ever think of the idea that you might become chairman yourself someday because we were discussing the whole thing and discussing like who would possibly be likely candidates and you know as I just said there wasn't you know a rush of people coming yeah. forward I think I was just teasing it out with Tony that maybe somebody that had some experience that mm. might and it was on the board he might actually the put themselves yeah he was very enthusiastic about it because Tony's um, grandfather I think it was was involved with Rovers he going was, back yeah. to the, the very yeah. start and played for Rovers and whatever so played for Rovers when we were wearing stripes and he was kind of very proud of that you yeah, know yeah. yeah so we had in the 18th of August with Joe Caldwell denied an article by Philip Quinn in the Irish Independent that Work had stopped on the stadium on account of unpaid bills. The contract at PJ McLaughlin. Caldwell said that four, just over four million, had been spent to date, and the builder simply wanted an assurance that the money would be there to pay for the remaining works still to be done in order to get the team playing there. And then in September, Joe Caldwell reported that he was in negotiations with three different groups of investors regarding the stadium project. And then in October, in Paul Boyle. Financial Director and Company Secretary and Jonathan Courtney, Marketing Director, joined the board. Tony McGuire became Chairman, Alan Duncan became Vice Chairman, also Directors Mick Cairns, John Brain, Tony Ennis, Jack Wilson and Soy departed from the board. So a uh, bit of a ch- bit of a change up, a bit of a mix up in the, in the, yeah, in the structure there. There was, yeah. yeah. That's a bit of an Anne Soy actually. Anne Soy, I've never heard that name. Yeah, Anne, Anne, Anne was um, kind of Joe's PA. She was a personal friend and neighbour of Joe's. Yeah. And he brought her on board. Nice yeah. woman. And she kind of helped Joe out with the, with the clerical end of it when he was run the club on his own or for a while because he needed someone that. Yeah, yeah. So, so was she was just with Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting side note on um, Tony McGuire. Uh, he'd been previously chairman of Tata Town in the Lancer Senior League and he had initially opposed the move of Rovers to the area on the basis that it would affect their plans. But then later when the two clubs merged, I think you mentioned that earlier, Robert, he found himself at the helm. So funny he was on both sides of the fence. Well, maybe <laughs> maybe Tony needs to be here to speak for himself. I yeah. suppose um, he was just representing views that were put to him by the committee of Talatown at the time. Uh, I got involved with the schoolboys committee around um, 1998, I think it was. I did two stints on it, but when I came on there first, it was kind of separated. Um, the schoolboys section had become fully integrated into Shamrock Rovers, but the Leinster Senior League side hadn't. And a lot of the old committee members were still there running the Leinster Senior League. Um, I got the impression that they, they weren't too disposed towards Shamrock Rovers. So I could just imagine that when they first heard that Rovers were going to come into Tala, uh, that I mean they were top dogs in Tala basically yeah, at yeah. the time. Um, Not a club coming to that patch. Like. Yeah, well, exactly. And Tala wasn't as fully developed as it is now. Like, so I suppose it was a smaller market and whatever. So they probably saw Rovers as a threat. Yeah. So I would imagine knowing some of the people that were good people now I have to say, but I can just imagine that the, what they were saying to Tony as chairman of <laughs> Allatown, you've got to oppose this, you know. So Maguire begins a search for potential investors as Ireland's building boom took off. Various property speculators showed an interest in the stadium as they eyed up the, they eyed up the development potential of a site located opposite Tadus Square Town Centre and adjacent to the new arena development on Wastetown Way. The stadium also always seemed to be three to four weeks away from getting the deal done. 
The builders returning or the roof being erected. Maguire first attempted to strike a deal with a local politician who initially agreed to finance the stadium but soon pulled out. And then we had the 7th of October. We had the 400 Club was set up at a public meeting at the Plaza Hotel Tala. The agreed aim was to assist in raising funds to enable the club to acquire a mortgage to complete the stadium. It was hoped that the approximately 400 fans would agree to donate, donate 40 per month for this purpose. So um, tell us about that meeting. That, uh, it was done on a week. The landmark was, was a 10 euro per week. 40 per month. No, it's 40 no, per month. A very, very significant meeting in Rovers history. <laughs> it was, and uh, it was Jack Wilson's uh, brainchild, and um, which was which was fantastic. Uh, he come, came up with this idea, and he put it to a few of us, and then he said, right, we'll get a meeting and see, can, see if we get support for that and put it in place. So we set up a bank account and got got fellas with direct debits, and everyone bought into it, and it was the beginning of, of money transfer now of everyone's account straight into into a bank account Bally Fairman and it, it really took off didn't it Robert? Well it was I remember that meeting in the Plaza Hotel mm. a very well attended meeting Jack spoke very passionately There's some photographs going around as well I think I remember them and John Connolly and a young Karen Connolly as well Yeah Like it was a big ask to be honest with you to ask the supporters to give 40 quid a month mm. but I think it was a, good, a great idea as well because people had wanted to do something We had enough Yeah, we well Anything we could do to, to I mean, if we pull the resources, we might get something done. That was the thoughts of it, you know. I mean, initially, okay, you, strength you, in numbers, as yeah, well, wasn't it? yeah. And we might get a loan and that, but we had to show over a period of time that there was bank money hitting the bank account that you were consistently willing to stick with it, and then you go and get a loan. That was your day behind it, you know. And then with the twenty seventh of October, Derry striker Liam Coyle, he broke Hoops' hearts when he scored the only goal of the FA Cup final. And a totally unsuited Saltaga Park as a fire in front of the main stand where Rovers fans were located. And I think somebody on the show told us that it was a cigarette. Somebody had flicked a cigarette. Yeah, the, the, the Rovers fans in that section of that stand, when they came out, they had this you know, Argentinian confetti stuff. Yeah. And the, the tifo. Yeah. And the piles of it. And it was all paper. It wasn't going to take long to go up. So went up fairly quick. But it was... It was sort of quick and the game went down, Robert, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I didn't even know what was going on, to tell you the truth. Yeah, they got four So it wasn't teams. that much of a deal? No, it wasn't. But getting beaten was horrendous. Well, that was a terrible so day horrendous. because I remember going up to the ground and I was there quite early because the Talent Echo actually asked me to help them out. They wanted to get photographs of Rovers fans coming down to the stadium. Like, they were doing this for all, you know... All Ireland matches and whatever, yeah. but they wanted to identify people from Tala. They were asking me if I could stand out on the road and identify fans who were from, from Tala. Right. So I was there quite early and I remember getting there and seeing Derry City arriving on the bus and they come off the bus and they're wearing their hmm. brand new slacks and uh, blazers and shirt and ties and whatever. And they really looked the business. It was like arriving into Wembley on yeah. FA Cup one day. And then you Antonio see Rovers. Stuff as well. yeah. You see Rovers arrive. Tracksuits. Dribs and drabs. They, they had brand new gear on. They'd arrived separately? They were, separately they were Individually, arriving. Individually, yeah. In their cars, whatever. Terrible. And they were arriving in these brand new um, Umbro tracksuits that they had been given. And may as well have been a Leinster Senior League side without disrespect, any disrespect to Leinster Senior League sides. But they may as well have been just a Leinster Senior League side arriving for the FAI Cup final. Bucko's philosophy was... Treat it as a home game because yeah. you can play at Tucker Park. No, I wouldn't agree with that. 
Whereas uh, players want to treat it like a big day out, don't they? They want it to be an event. You have to yeah. be. Yeah, why treat it like another random game? It's Fair enough, you might have treated the previous games up to that like that, but this is different. It's it never felt final. like an FAI Cup final. No. A Biden memory of that was uh, after Limco scored, James Kelly should have got the equaliser. The header on the far post. Right at the end. It was just hit us straight. We could have won that game. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> And looking at Noel Hunt coming off the pitch, crying his eyes out. Yes, so the lads, I'm so sorry. We had a good night that night up in the City West Hotel. City West, that was a great crowd. It was a good night. That's the night that they met Jack Wilson president. Yeah, Tom literally just president. about to go on to that now. And I had a club function later that night. Held in the City West Hotel, Ch- Chairman Tony Maguire announced that Jack Wilson had been appointed as club president. So, 8th November, Rovers constant switching from ground to ground reached farcical proportions when they upped themselves from Tolka Park and returned to Richmond for the remainder of the season. And then we 29th of November, we the SRFC board directors completed the purchase of majority shareholding of Sloan Park, the company set up to develop the stadium. Chairman Tony McGuire predicted that Rovers would be playing at the stadium by the end of the summer in 2003. More promises. And uh, mid-December, Joe Caldwell resigned from the board of both Shamrock Rovers and Sloan Park, so we're coming up to Christmas, and the funding of the club became critical as the ongoing saga of the stadium began to bite deep. A mystery person donated an interest, an interest-free loan of fifty thousand to help keep Rovers going. Is that uh, that individual you spoke oh, about? Sure, Connor. Yeah. Oh, sure. Is it the same mystery person who brought the ultras farm back recently? That <laughs> <laughs> died and came back. So we're going to quote uh, Owen Rice here. He says the mystery investor became the talk of the club with Maguire and Kearns hating them as the saviour of Rovers. Negotiations were complicated, however, by the presence of Muldham's International's Four Acres. The investor, later named as Conor Clarkson, property developer and racehorse owner, would finish the stadium on the basis that he would construct retail units below the stands. However, he needed Muldham's land, and Muldham appeared reluctant to sell. Although it appears as if the two sets of property developers were loggerheads, Clarkson and McNamara O'Reilly were far from enemies. In fact, Clarkson's racehorse, Kicking King, was sponsored by none other than Bernard McNamara. Despite their closeness, the groups appeared unable to strike a deal, which would see all parties benefit. Yeah, that was that was a tragedy. All sorts of school But that was a tragedy. Four acres. Yeah, I pushed on earlier on. It was it was such a pity because them four acres. <coughs> No one could develop it without that. No one's going to invest without that. The, the makers and that's that was the the, the slamming in the door. Every chance we got had to, to get bringing someone in. And then we go on to January. With Rovers finished touring the Premier Division and enjoy a memorable Intertoto Cup campaign that year. And by the end of October, the newly formed 400 club had been subscribed by 250 supporters. 2003, the beginning of summer football, there was an aerial plan photo that appeared in the papers and said that Tala would be a 20,000 all-seater stadium. So, uh, point yeah, of the story stuff. How's it up to 20,000 then? This point. is a GAA thing, is it? Oh, we're moving on to the... I'm not too sure yet. We're going to go on to the 17th of February. At a public meeting held at the Plaza Hotel, Hoops fans were told by the board that efforts were ongoing in an effort to bring investors on board to complete the stadium. The board presented an alternative solution involving the GAA and the scenes that followed were, an ab- were of absolute fury as the members of fans <laughs> united in their opposition to any deal involving the GAA the board were left in no doubt that such an arrange, arrangement was unacceptable to the fans. So tell us about the fury, whack. Robert just pointed at Mick and laughed, so... Tell us about you the fury, well, you, was, you? I will say this to you, lads. We had some heated board meetings over this. <laughs> Jack Wilson, myself, 
or absolutely venomously opposed to GAA getting up. Venomously? Yeah. The others were open a bit to it. Uh, Tony McGuire kind of would have, would have went with it to some degree. So would uh, Tony Ennis a bit to it, yeah, and Paul Boyle and um, John Brain and Jonathan Courtney. But when the public meeting was held in the spa, in the, in the Plaza Hotel, um, there was a real air of just, just problems in the air, right? Yeah. And they had, they Bowman, had, was it? Yeah, I went, I went to meetings with David Kennedy and um, the Dublin GAA chairman at the time, he was a Fine Gael councillor, uh, Bailey. John Bailey. Yeah, mm. and I remember sitting around the table, me, John Brain, Jack Wilson, and Tony McGuire, and Bailey turned around and says, but you're the problem in the room. I says, why am I the problem in the room? I love my football club. I'm here to protect my football club. And uh, everyone started, you know, kind of, you're the one that doesn't want this to go through. I says, I just want this right for, for overs. I'm not going to give away a, a football ground and you're going to railroad us over after a few years. Yeah. So the heads of agreement was in place to some degree to talk. So we had to then go back to the fans and say, look, do you want this or do you not want Here's it? Here's what the crack is. And the word went out, look, they're talking to the GAA and myself and Jack were saying, no way. Whatever it takes, we're not going to let them near the place. And the meeting started and we all had heads of agreement and I was sitting up at the top of the table and I says, lads, as far as I'm concerned, I got the agreement, I ripped it up and I threw it in Tony McGuire's face. I said, fuck you and your agreement. I'm out. And then Jack Wilson got up, and then the place erupted. And Bobby, Bobby Best. Best. My brother Brendan, Noel Bourne, all got up. Walked no out? No way. No, we didn't walk out. We said, we want you out. We're not having this. And it ended in chaos, didn't it? It ended in pure chaos, and I don't know. Was it like the Ukrainian you, parliament? You, <laughs> <laughs> was there dicks well, There was, there we was police afraid. out with dogs yeah. and everything. The Royal Squad was downstairs. We heard that the guards were in the hotel, yeah, in case... It was fractured, yes, and yeah. it was close. Jesus. And, and then, then I had to ring Tony McGuire and say, look, Tony, you know where I'm the next few days. You know where I am, but at the end of it all, this is a person. I love my football club. I'm not getting out. I'm totally opposed to this. But it died that night because the fans left the board in no doubt whatsoever. What they wanted. Their feelings on the yeah. board. They did not want the GAA to have any hand actor part in this whatsoever. Rightly so as well, in my opinion. And we'll move on to May with Tony McGuire stated the progress in put together a financial package was proven to be a lengthy process. But he expected ongoing negotiations to come to a conclusion shortly. And the quote is, we might even have work going on in the site again by the start of June. After that, we've been told it'll be five months before we're in, said McGuire. And then we have Mick Carnes assume the role of stadium project director after Joe Caldwell stood down. Mick reported that the club had come to an agreement to lease out the bar and the function area. Publican and hotelier Hugh O'Regan was the interested party involved and he had agreed to pay over 300000 per annum for the lease. He had a meeting with the council in February to keep them informed of what was happening at the stadium. He said there was a club in negotiations with a number of financial institutions with a view to procuring the necessary finance to complete the stadium. So things were looking up once again. Yeah. Like I said, it's a roller coaster ride. And then the 9th of May, the club held a press conference at the Plaza Hotel to announce that it had come to a deal with Ben Dunn at Bark Island Developments. Dunn would build a health and leisure centre at the south end of the ground as well as a 2,000-seat stand for Rovers. The club would receive an immediate cash injection, £2 million, and this would enable them to finish off the remainder of the work of, that was outstanding. And just, you're right, Robert, this could be a movie. 
it's there's so much going on all these uh interesting individuals and rich individuals that are coming yeah. left right and center yeah. just to get involved but don't move he pulled out soon even rovers with a, a lot of egg on their face and the sort of march the 400 club trustees were elected at a meeting at the plaza hotel following pressure from the members to have an election and this seems like a very significant day in in the history of rovers with the 400 club trustees being elected just on Ben Don, actually, ironically, he ended up building a gym right behind us here. He crushed our childhood dreams. In Johnny yeah. Blues. That's yeah. where me and the prof used to play ball. We're, we're, another, we're another club who have been homeless for 20 years. Glenmore Celtic used to play. Ben Dunn built the gym there, and then they had to move away. So, yeah, bit of a link there. Uh, and uh, the 400 Club, the, do you remember when they were elected? Was it was it uh, was it significant? Ah, yeah, it was. Look, look, it was the right thing to do at the time, and the lads came in, and and, and look, it was a pressure release off of the board members that were still there. I was gone a, a long time before that, but um, it was it was it was the proper thing to do, and the fans took control of the club. And yeah, a bit of tension started to emerge then between the four hundred club, i.e., the fans, if you like, yeah. and the board, mm. and then things started going in a different direction. Would that have been Wait, because the 400 Club thought they have power now, was it? As if to say, right, well, we need to be listened to. Yeah, well, they had the money. They did more yeah. income than, than the club had at that stage. So they used that to, you know, say, look, lads, you know, we, 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 could, we can make a significant difference. And yeah. that's that's how it happened. Yeah, and I think the board were looking for a dig out, actually. They were. The 400 Club looking for this money that was being accumulated. To pay for day to day running of the and that's what it was club. for, and essentially it was for it was for whatever to keep the club alive and hopefully get a loan to, to get the development back yeah. on track. But um, it it came just just look they used the money to to um, to get control of the club. And then the fourth September, we Tony McGuire said that the builders will be back on site before the end of September, and Rovers will be playing in Tallaght by March two thousand and four. And there was some serious trouble on Emmett Road after the Rovers versus Bowes game led to St. Patrick's Athletic terminating the tenancy agreement at Richmond Park with immediate effect. A crisis developed at the club as Rovers could not get an alternative venue to play their home games and were forced to postpone their next home fixture against Shelbourne and the following home game against UCD was played at Belfield Park. The home game against Cork City on September 27th was played at Turner's Cross and was this the lowest point of any Rovers career of you your, your career following Rovers travelling two hundred and fifty kilometers for a home game. That was heartbreaking. What was the trouble about on Emmett Road that night? Uh, both sets of fans got out together. Bows were on double decker buses and they were attacked, and it wasn't pretty. It was all over the Joe Duffy show the next day, and that was horrendous stuff. And, and problem Pats. for Pats there was that they were already getting a lot of hassle off residents. Uh, there was a group of residents, I think, led up by a barrister who lived in one of the houses right in front of the, the stadium. Get rovers out of there. Uh, it wasn't just to get rovers out of there. They were just complaining about everything, like parking on match nights and everything yeah. else. And I think that when that incident happened, um, we, we were told in the stadium that night by Pats, we were told, that's it, you, you're out of here. Yeah. Because I think that they were just so scared of the reaction of the residents. So it really left us in... In the shit street. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was terrible. But they having to go to Cork was dreadful, there was. So. Robert, in all your time chronicling the history of Rovers over the decades, to see a Rovers team toggle in their away shirts. In the away dressing room. For a home game against Cork, in Cork. Did you think you'd now seen it all? 
No, I didn't think I had seen it all because you just didn't know what was going to come next. <laughs> yeah, you know, if we, if so we much. on this. Like, I mean, yeah. I remember I went down to that match. Um, it was still our home game, so we produced the programme ourselves. And I remember going down to Alan Duncan's house down in, in Nice, and I had uh, six or eight boxes of programmes in the back of my car. So myself and a couple of others travelled down to Cork in, in Alan's car. We arrived there and got the programmes out. Uh, Jerry Desmond, great Cork fan involved in the programme there himself, was great help to me there that night, I have to say. But uh, generally speaking, uh, the, the Cork fans were very hostile to us. Uh, just didn't like the idea of having to pay in. A lot of them that wouldn't normally have to pay in, say, season ticket holders or whatever. They couldn't grasp why they were paying in on that night. But it was a Shamrock Rovers home game. Yeah, well, they would have been due to travel to Dublin anyway. So mm. Yeah. You know. But I, I think the board done at that stage for the, the money that we did have the money. Well, they had to play the game. Yeah. Or the club would have been duck points. Yeah. yeah. And not for the first time, Shelbourne stood in and made Tolka Park available for the last few home games of the season and we finished seventh. And then in October, Chairman Tony McGuire announced that the head, heads of agreement have been drawn up and the potential investors enabled to complete the stadium and the move to Tallow was good to go so the 400 club AGM saw the removal of club directors from the board of trustees the new committee consists of Paddy McQuaid as the chairman Eamon Keenan as the treasurer Rob Tormey Mark Lynch and Jonathan Roach the 400 club now had 312 members so this is the the the, the, the new era that still exists pretty much now yeah yeah on the 21st of November, Rovers' finances were going from bad to worse. Players' wages began to go unpaid and the Eden Herald carried a story on action taken by Benson's dry cleaners on the Crumlin Road. The owners, David and Veronica Mackin, took Shamrock Rovers to court in a bid to get €3,000 owed to them by Rovers. Everything was fine up until August of last year and their account was clear, but from until then, until May, we've had nothing but hassle. Veronica Mackin was quoted as saying, so even when the dry cleaners are going to the, going to the press... Oh, that was sad, yeah. It is, it's a sad it day. Terrible. And chicks were bouncing and the players weren't happy and the 2003 season drew to a close. Rover supporters held an impromptu collection for the players at half-time, raising a token €500, Euro, which uh, to the players somewhat ironically donated to an anti-depression charity. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> At the end of the season, nine players left for the club. Pestures new. Yet, as the 2004 season began, the same problems arose with uh, some players owed four-figure sums by the clubs. So, January 2004. Oh, when the hoops. A play written by Frank Allen attracted keen interest on the opening night at the Liberty Hall Theatre. The play was based around the sale of Milltown and some fictional residents who have strange experiences after purchasing one of the houses that were built on the site of Glenmore Park. I wish I, I really wish I had seen this now, Robert. So can oh, you, I can only imagine. Did you yeah, describe yeah. this play now? Well, I remember being at the play, all right. It was actually very well done. Were you at it, Mick? I was, yeah. yeah. It was very well yeah. done. Um, at the very end of the, the play, um, they had some special effects, which was like a ghost or something, like yeah. coming in over the stage to, <laughs> to haunt. To haunt the people. Yeah. <laughs> Milltown's haunted, yeah. It was a very good play, yeah. <laughs> Gary knows a bit of a theatre buff, so. Yeah. I <laughs> wish I'd seen it. So, still in January 2004, was it all a joke? The well-known comedian Brendan O'Carroll was reported to be a leading consortium who were interested in taking over Shamrock Rovers and the entire Tata Stadium project. And who planned is he? I wouldn't say so. No, but he he, um, he, was he definitely met the board, absolutely. He met members of the board. I wasn't part of that uh, meeting, but um, it, he was. He was interested at one stage, yeah. He was. I don't think it really 
gathered momentum, but it, he 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 did show interest. And then he made Mrs. Brown's boys instead. <laughs> but it was a bit later. It was a bit later, yeah. So for three years, this uh, shell of a stadium has acted as a, an eyesore for the people of Tada. Mm. A squad photo was taken in front of the same partially complete West End, probably gathering weeds and cobwebs at the stage. In February, despite opposition from a group of local residents, St. Patrick's Athletic agreed once more to release Richmond Park to Shamrock Rovers to enable the Hoops to play their home games at the Intracar venue for the 2004 season, except for two <laughs> games, games against Pohos, which were... <laughs> Held at Talca Park. Uh, May, another critical date, I think, in this whole story. Jack Wilson resigns as a member of the board of SRC. He said that he and Tommy Conroy set up the 400 Club to help Robert survive, but he felt that the 400 Club had become an investment club with the object, with the object of handing over money to the club only when a share option scheme was agreed. Former 400 Club chairman and trustee Paddy McQuaid Subsequently responded by referring to the meeting of 400 members on the 21st of October 2003 when the members were balloted to approve a motion which, if agreed, would see the 400 club provide a sum of €210,000 over a 300 period of Shamrock Rovers Football Club in return for a 5% share in both Sloan Park Limited and the Shamrock Rovers Club. The offer of these shares had been made by Tony Maguire at an earlier meeting between representatives of the board of SRFC and the 400 club trustees. So, who do you think was right here in this argument, lads? Um, I have vague recollection of one of the meetings in the plaza where we were told about this plan. Uh, I can't remember too much more about it though, to, to be really honest. But I think it was the way that things were going that the 400 club possibly felt that the the board would not in the long term be able to to deliver and they had um, established their own ideas as regards dealing with the council and the land parts of the land should be given back to the council and maybe it should be state the development of the stadium should be state funded I think this is the way the 400 club were, were looking at this yeah. at, at this stage. They were saying this was beginning to come out and I think the board were resisting this because they still believed that they could actually complete the development themselves. You know, with the, with the assistance of various investors who were yeah. coming and going at this stage. Was yeah, that's about, that's about what it is. And what was, um, well, how did you feel about this decision at the time? Mick, you, you've been... St- away for a while now you haven't been involved in the board no it's just been a fan and I just wanted an end of the whole bloody saga of getting of getting the ground built um, I think at this stage the board were kind of half exhausted as well it's just it was tough going for a board with no home and uh, everything else had gone along with it so it didn't it, I didn't fully agree with the the, um, the decision to just you know uh let the ball go into the into the abyss, but look at who it is, what it is, and it ended yeah. up where it ended up. It didn't end up too badly, did it? Really? No, certainly didn't. No, I think this was the beginning of where the direction that we eventually took as a club. Yeah, and and look, it was for the benefit of the club long term. I mean, nobody was going to keep that thing going on the road with trying to feed a football team every 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 year and try and get an investment. Yeah. I mean, the quagmire of the leases was the real crux. I mean, even the even the four hundred club, if they were were the board for another few years, they would have got exhausted. So, yeah. 
the lease going back to the council was 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 the only way to go because he had the funding to, to have what we have today. So September, uh, Liam Buckley was dismissed as manager of Shamrock Rovers after a series of poor results. Given everything that was happening off the pitch, the action by the board appeared harsh. Former Hoops player Noel Sinna took over as caretaker manager. Uh, the word was that the investor, as distinct to the previously reported investors, plural, was attempting to buy out Modern International and it was looking good. The AGM of the foreign club proved to be a fiery affair as members voiced their concerns about the future of Shemek Rovers. At that stage, Conor Clarkson was very close to buying out Molden International. But look, history shows it didn't happen, but he was really close to buying out Jerry O'Reilly's shares. But they just never got her over the line. They never agreed on it. And that was the one. And see, there was another aspect here regarding Liam Buckley, that Liam actually was putting his own plans together and said that he had an investor whom we now believe may have been uh, Jerry Gannon, the well-known developer. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. yeah. Uh, Liam actually spoke to the board. I think he presented his, his plans to the board on that. Mm. And um, I don't think that the, the board were too keen on, on, on that either. I often felt that maybe the board, I could have no evidence of this, of course, but I often felt that maybe the board felt that Liam was overstepping the line a bit, yeah. uh, stepping into something that he shouldn't be, and maybe they resented that, and that could have contributed to his dismissal. Uh, October the 1st, a 1-0 defeat in Cork left Rovers in a perilous position, third from the bottom in the Premier Division, just a point ahead of Derry City. A week later, the Hoops were in action against Derry at Richmond Park, but before the game began, a protest by fans who were frustrated with the SRFC board was staged on the pitch, and Jonathan Roach foreigner club trustee had this to say later he said the 400 club members didn't want to give the board any more money the board begged it was hard and you were questioning yourself all the time i remember giving our football club 30,000 euro before we played Derry, and we were on the pitch at half time protesting it was hard for me and others who had a dual role as both a fan and a foreigner club trustee we forced the club into examinership i remember the protest i wasn't on the pitch, I was sitting in the front of the stand. I had mixed feelings about it because I understood the frustration of everybody and, you know, they wanted to do something to highlight this. Uh, the, a lot of the fans had lost faith in the board. There was, as you said, like the constant references in the chairman's notes to three to four weeks and this will be happening, that will be happening and then when it wasn't happening, uh, it might have been better off if they hadn't actually been saying anything until they had something concrete to, you know, if you pardon the pun, to actually, you know, produce. Uh, but I think the protest was just indicative of the way that everybody was feeling at the time. But as I said, like, um, we were kind of moving along at this stage now on, on a course that led eventually to, as you just referred to there, the examinership. This is where the club definitely seemed to be to be going to. Uh, at one stage, there, a couple of months after that, then the Evening Herald produced a um, document uh, stating all of the club's debts and mentioning all the people that money were, were owed to. And uh, it was quite shocking, really, to see it. Like, to think yeah, that, and you wouldn't have known if it wasn't for the Herald. I didn't know the extent of it. Yeah, Gary, so tell much. you the truth. Yeah, 3.3 million it was, and then you wondered what else wasn't included in that either. 
it's it's crazy amount of money to owe out. And then we had the 17th of October, Rovers difficulties were coming more and more into the public domain. 16 players were owed 42,000 in wages according to the Star and Sunday newspaper and the players were threatening to go on strike for the upcoming league a league game against Australia United so it's it's unnecessary uh, media attention as well and to add to the woes of the club and then you had the 21st of October an application was made to the South Dublin County Council for a further extension to the plan of permission granted for the building of the stadium on the same day the Tala Echo report that Liam Buckley had confirmed to them that he had previously put a proposal to the board of SRFC to buy them out uh, with a backer to complete the stadium at a cost of 12.5 million and as you spoke about earlier on, uh, it could have uh, kind of rubbed the board up the wrong way. And then we toured November. Former Bowls manager Ruddy Collins was unveiled as the new manager of Shamrock Rovers just two days before the hoops were due to meet the Gypsies in a league game at Talca Park. So tell me about the appointment of Ruddy and was it how was it welcomed at the time, Mick? Was that with you? Um, no, it wasn't unanimous on the board at all. No, no, it was not. No, no chance. Um, one last roll of the dice. Pat Fennell was coming to the end of his reign at um, Shelbourne and I asked the board, listen, can I have permission to ask to offer Pat Fennell the job? And he said, yeah, you go and offer him the job. If he takes it, great. If he doesn't, we're going to go for Roddy. So I drove out and I met him over in the halfway house in uh, the Nathan Rose and I said, look, I'm here to offer you the board, the job as Sherman Grover's manager. And he turned it down. Flat. No, absolutely not. He wanted 24 hours to think about it. And he got 24 hours, but he just wanted a break from football then because he was, he was exhausted with the way Shelburne were going. And, yeah. you know, they, they'd had our woes as well at that stage. Um, but that's, that's when um, I had to report back to the board then and say, look, Pat, doesn't, Pat just at the moment doesn't want to take the job. Um, he just wants a break. Out now, who were the alternatives? Were there any alternatives? Roddy Collins was the only alternative. Really? Yeah. Um, Sad state of affairs. Yeah, yeah. and uh, most of the board wanted, a couple of us didn't, but that's how he. Who got was the he job. before that? What was it? Was he. Who was Roddy with before? Jesus, he was with a good few clubs. I couldn't remember which one was actually direct. He was he was available at he that time. Yeah. So it suited. Well, I was he was walking, walking down. The city, wasn't he? he was against us in that relegation battle. And he jumped ship from Dublin City yeah, to us, was it? Was it? Halfway through the season. Yeah, could be. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Maybe you're right. Mm. Maybe you're right. Um, but then you had the fifth and all. You want to say something? Wrong? No, I was just walking down Pierce Street uh, on the Wednesday morning when Tony McGuire rang me to tell me that I think it was a Thursday morning actually, rang me to tell me that they were after appointing Roddy Collins. What was your reaction? I think it was kind of. I think it was just polite to Tony to tell you the truth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I don't know what to say. I knew this was going to go down like a lead balloon, would you? But it was kind of strange because it was the season. We were just coming up to the end of the season, so I don't know why the appointment was made at the the end of the season, Mick. Mm. Why was crucial it not, time as well? Yeah. Why was it not? You know, let roll on into. To be honest, I can't season. go back with me. Memory's gone. I just remember. Look, we had we had one option. If Nutsy didn't want it, it was going to give it to Roddy. That was it. And then we, the 5th of November, Tony McGuire revealed that the name of the investor was Conor Clarkson. Successful businessman from the club who had entered into discussions with July, July 2003. And then the 24th of November, the season ended up with a 2-1 win away to Dublin City FC who were already relegated. Rovers finished second last but escaped the drop as only one club went down due to a number of clubs in the Premier Division being increased from 10 to 12 for the 2005 season. 
And then 16th of December, South Dublin County Council finally called time on Rovers' plans to complete the half-built stadium by refusing further extension to the plan permission. The Evening Herald reported, the Evening Herald reported that Shamrock Rovers were teetering on the brink and that must have been a right kick in the teeth. Oh, that and was they horrendous. didn't extend the plan of permission. Oh, that was absolutely horrendous. So what was it? What did you do? When? Where? Can you remember where you were when you found yeah, out? Yeah, I do. I remember the morning. I was on the radio. Uh, one of the one of the sports bulletins after the news and uh, plan permission refused for Shamrock Rovers Stadium. And that was it. Then I said to myself, "What goose there? You know, yeah. there's nowhere to go mm. now because we ran out. We couldn't get investors. We we uh, we hit a brick wall and then without the, without the plan and extension." Sure, we'd know where to go. What was the reason they gave? Because they granted us extension in 2003, but then refused in 2004. So what did they, they say? Why? The finance, because they didn't see how we we're going to complete it. Hmm. Financially, how are we going to complete it? If like if you, if you have two years and you couldn't get the finance in two years, you're not going to get it in the next two years. Yeah, well, there was constant meetings between the club and the council. The council were concerned. They were very well aware because you know people were. Like residents and you know voters, whatever. Like people were always raising this with the council, like about the eyesore. It was just a complete eyesore. Yeah, and they um, wanted an end to it. Yeah, they wanted an end to it because it, it dragged on for so long, and and the people on the street was fed up with the eyesore, as Robert said, and yeah. that, that was and they couldn't see us finance it because they were looking at the problems with the with the day to day running the club. How are you going to finance the stadium? Hmm. And then 2005, the trustees of the 400 Club had serious concerns with Shamrock Rovers FC and in an extraordinary move saw and were subsequently granted a meeting with the FAI at the association's headquarters in Merrion Square. And can you tell me about this meeting? Was any of you guys involved? No, I wasn't no. involved in that one. I wasn't involved. I remember the meeting taking no. place, but I wasn't involved in it. No. And 27th of January, Mick, you resigned from the board. Yeah. And you just had enough. Well, it was the it was the it was the the fuse of the planning because I just knew that there's nowhere to go with this now. We were just at the end of a road, and probably the only way was to give the it was mute at that stage to get the give the lease back and we'll finish it. And I said, look, it's the only way to go because <clears throat> no league of Ireland club has the finances to to, to to put this thing to bed and uh, get yeah. it open, give it back to the council, and then move on. Right, so uh, that's it for our part one of our members special. We're going to end it there on a cliffhanger. Tune in later this year to find out if the club survived and made it to <laughs> So we plan to record part two sometime in May or June. Brand new guests to take us through the high court, Thomas Davis, relegation and all of that. So we're extremely thankful for the lads and fantastic memories no for coming problem. in and helping can us I, out. Can I, can I say one thing? I was on the board, right, and... It's it's being on a board of a football club is not easy. Like football club you love in particular. Yeah, it's not easy. It's just because you go to matches and uh, every match is uh, questions and answers and it's day to day stuff. It's not easy being a board member because that player's crap sacked the manager. Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? It's really difficult and uh, like like uh, for any board member because um, not a lot of things you can't do right. You know, I mean, every, you know, it's just. And with the social media now, I, I don't envy the lads where they are, to be yeah. very honest with you. I don't envy them what they do day to day. It's not easy. And you can't keep hands sacred anymore or safe. Mm. Everything's out immediately. And uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't envy them to be, be on the board. Well, I would just say, um, in finishing up that, 
you know, we were talking earlier on about the present generation, that there's a whole generation that wouldn't know or understand the struggles of the club in the past and whatever, and hopefully... Including me and Gary. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, exactly. And, you know, hopefully this podcast will help a lot and, you know, help people to understand the history of the club uh, in, in that regard. It was an absolute awful time. It was completely... But now we're in a fantastic stadium. The club is certainly nothing like what it was in the past. Um, And it's an absolute credit to everybody who has worked on the board and people who have helped out and whatever like to get the club to where it is now. But the only thing is we we do need a bit bit more unity in the club, I think. We need more people to get on board and to help to make Shamrock Rovers a greater club because the potential out there for this club and for other clubs in the league because we have to have other clubs to go with us but the potential for us as a club in this league is just untapped as far as I'm concerned to a large degree so we need everybody to you know be more enthusiastic support the club better get on board it's great to have the support that we have and thanks to everybody that, that does support the club yeah. especially with the potential fan base that we do and have look, in and around Tala and you know like we, we have a fantastic vehicle the vehicle is the stadium I, I'm involved in the maintenance of the stadium and I'm telling you it is not cheap to keep that facility you know, I know the club pay a lot of money but we have a fantastic facility when you go around the lakes and you look at the, the yeah. tips we go to mm-hmm. we're lucky and um, it's just a pity we don't get 5,000 every match because that's where we should be really trying well, to listen, get there's to. plans of foot to work on it and uh, we have to we'll work do our on best. it I know and then look we have to work and we have to stay together because you know the good days will come. They will definitely come. We will win trophies again. There's no doubt about it. But it's just getting there and getting the belief among the fan base to stick with it. Mm. And I have to say, I think that the new South Stand, get the fans in there and get the like the wall of sound in Dortmund. We could be the wall of sound in Dublin. No it's doubt be about a cracker, it. Cracker, isn't it? Keep on helping. <laughs> so that's it. And keep tuned for our next special. And uh, that's it from us today. And like Mick says, keep on helping. See you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Well, I'm on my way to heaven. We shall not be moved. On our way to heaven. We shall not be moved. Just like a tree that's standing by the water side. We shall not be moved. We shall not. We shall not be moved. Just like a tree that's standing by the water